something i go on about all the time is how we take the present for granted when it is so so contingent take india for example we think of india as a fixed geographical entity almost as something inevitable something meant to be and now as something permanent but we are a recent nation born out of circumstance and happenstance maintained perhaps by inertia when india gained independence in 1947 this india that we now inhabit was anything but inevitable in fact at times it must have seemed so unlikely it wasn't just a question of holding british india together after splitting it in two there were almost 600 princely states all with their own agreements with the british many of whom wanted to join neither india nor pakistan but just to get their independence back and since our whole freedom struggle was a battle for independence from the british who could grudge them this some of them even though they were deep within present day india wanted to be part of pakistan using force on these princely states would not have gone down well with the international community so they had to be persuaded to join india of their own free will our founders had a few weeks before independence to accomplish this task which seemed almost impossible hundreds of princely states how do you get them all to sign on the dotted line how do you even find the time to speak to all of them how do you accommodate the separate demands especially when pakistan is also playing mischief in the background the balkanization of india seemed inevitable but it did not happen step by step the country we now know as india was politically constructed by a handful of men one of them of course is sardar vallabhbhai patel but his right hand man bp menon is today a footnote in most history books despite being arguably as important as patel in bringing us all together if vp menon did not exist we may have been living in a different india Welcome to the seen and the unseen. Our weekly podcast on economics, politics and behavioral science. Please welcome your host, Amit Varma. Welcome to the seen and the unseen. My guest today is Narayani Basu, author of the fine book BP Menon, the unsung architect of modern India. This is a fitting subject for a show called The Seen and the Unseen. because vp menon really is one of those unseen heroes whose contribution to our history is outsized well unseen no more narayani's book is available at your nearest bookstore and by all accounts is already a bestseller and narayani is right here with me on the show before we get to our conversation though let's take a quick commercial break If you enjoy listening to the scene on the unseen you can play a part in keeping the show alive the scene on the unseen has been a labor of love for me i've enjoyed putting together many stimulating conversations expanding my brain and my universe and hopefully yours as well but while the work has been its own reward i don't actually make much money off the show although the scene on the unseen has great numbers advertisers haven't really woken up to the insane engagement level of podcast i do many many hours of deep research for each episode besides all the logistics of producing the show myself scheduling guests booking studios paying technicians the travel and so on so well i'm trying a new way of keeping this thing going and that involves you my proposition for you is this for every episode of the seen and the unseen that you enjoy buy me a cup of coffee or even a lavish lunch whatever you feel it's worth you can do this by heading over to seenunseen.in/support and contributing an amount of your choice this is not a subscription the seen and the unseen will continue to be free on all podcast apps and at seenunseen.in this is just a gesture of appreciation 
help keep this thing going. seenunseen.in/support Narayani, welcome to the Scene and the Unseen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, before we get to this um, fascinating book that's clearly been a labor of love for you, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, what are you? What's your training? What's your education like? So, I have basically majored in history. I went uh, to Stevens. I majored in history. I then switched to international relations. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do post history. I knew I didn't want to get into conventional academics. I didn't want to do a PhD. I didn't want to teach. I also didn't want to sit for the civil services. Um, but I really enjoyed studying about international relations, about how countries interacted with each other, diplomats interacted with each other. So I switched to international relations. I majored in Chinese foreign policy. I specialized in U.S.-China relations. I completed my academics up to my MPhil, and thereafter, I just I dropped out of academia 100%. I didn't want to continue to do a PhD. I took up a job as a research analyst with the Institute of Peace and Conflict Studies, uh, where I worked for a couple of years as a China research analyst. It wasn't something that gave me a lot of joy because it was not the kind of interaction with international relations that I actually wanted to do. And at that point, I wasn't very clear about what that meant either. I just knew that I wasn't very pleased with what I was doing. I also knew that I wanted to write and research a lot more than the job was actually giving me the scope to do. So I quit my job. Uh, this was about six years ago. I quit my job and I turned to writing full time and research full time. And coincidentally, that is also the track that brought me on to writing VP Menon because at that point I was reading. I've always been a lover of nonfiction. I've read a lot of political and historical nonfiction biographies primarily, and I was at that point reading a lot about modern Indian history, about his how the transfer of power came about, etc. And I would see VP Menon's name, and let me just make it clear: I did not know at this point VP Menon was my great grandfather. You did not know. No, I didn't point. know. <laughs> so this is not uh, something that we discussed effusively at all. Uh, my mother never, uh, and indeed members of my family, didn't ever bring me up to know who VP Menon was. There was no constant eulogizing of this was who your great grandfather was. Uh, but we are a family who loves to read, and we like to discuss books. So I was discussing uh, a particular book, I forget which, on the transfer of power, and I was mentioning VP Menon, uh, who was perennially referred to as in Mountbatten's Able Reforms Commissioner, etc. And at that point, I was in my mid twenties, and my mother looked at me and she said, "You do know that he was your great grandfather," and that was the first time that I'd heard of him. And that completely it intrigued me a lot because I wanted to immediately know more about this person. And I began to try and look him up, and I found nothing uh, apart from his very seminal books, *The Transfer of Power* and *The Story of the Integration of the States*. But those are written in very academic, very concise prose. They reveal nothing. Uh, they give nothing away about what kind of man this person was. And there was nothing else. There was no biography. There was no autobiography. There was nothing. And I began to become more and more interested in this person and. Trying to find out what kind of person this was, and that I'm—I um, have to say—it happened simultaneously with me losing interest in a typical desk job. So when I dropped out, when I quit my job, this seemed like the natural thing to do—to research who VP Menon was and what I wanted to do as far as writing his life was concerned. Did I want to write a complete biography? Did I want to explore it into more of a political biography? What did I want to do? It was the first time that I had actually started playing around with ideas like that. 
and that gave me a lot of joy it gave me great freedom to think it gave me a lot of uh, scope to sort of expand my horizons more and actually how i began writing this book and how i came to this point and so you know you get drawn into the stories of he's because obviously a lot of the popular books that we read about our history yeah. will mention him yeah. he is mountbatten's reforms commissioner he is uh, you know patel's right hand man in the states department but when you actually decide that you want to write a history of the guy and you also decide that it's going to be a sort of a comprehensive history not just his political yeah. career it's going to include little things like how he ran away from home and burnt a school when he was 13 <laughs> years yeah. old yeah what are the kind of sources that you then look at because you have the unique position of not just having access to the family but his family is your family yeah. so you've got a unique kind of access there but apart from that how do you then go about looking for sources what kind of access do you need for that were there good primary sources left so in terms of his professional life there was plenty of access uh, and this happened in a sort of layered way because he's left behind a collection of his professional papers rather which are housed at tinmurti now these have nothing to do with his personal life they are just basically his career and government service and that is the vp menon collection uh, apart from that i also had to go through the professional papers of nearly everyone who was involved in the transfer of power so batten nehru krishna menon the sardar patel correspondence because in every one of these people's correspondence in between the pages there were different memos there were letters written by vp to these guys and these guys were corresponding with him in turn which have merited footnotes in transfer of power narratives but never really been looked at so these to me were also a huge insight in how into how this man was thinking so that was one source um as far as his personal life was concerned i hit several roadblocks because he was a very very fiercely private man he was not somebody who was an eloquent diarist or an eloquent letter writer he left behind very few instances of how he felt at a particular point uh, of how he experienced his own personal arrival for instance his arrival in delhi and stuff like that they are letters that have been left few and far between there are letters that were left to his stepdaughter minakshi anantan one or two letters have survived that were left to his brother to whom he was extremely close and he was the eldest of seven siblings so he was very close to one particular younger brother with whom he used to correspond but whether he was the oldest boy he had an elder sister who got married or am i confused he had his elder sister is not really talked about because she died long before yeah, he, so was, he was so effectively he was so effectively he was the eldest of the family and these were letters that didn't allow me much insight into the man as such because he very rarely talked about for instance his transition from boyhood to manhood you know when he talked about his arrival in delhi it was only at a specific point in time so he wasn't very vocal about things like that about his emotions about his feelings so it was a labor i have to say a long long labor because in the process of this i've had to connect to members of the vapala clan whom i didn't know at all because when vp left um kerala and when he ran away to kolar and moved to delhi and simla he used to return to kerala but he never really returned to settle in kerala he retired in bangalore so his children grew up out of the main tarawad which by the way still exists but nobody ever really returned at least not from my family so there was no touch that was maintained between members of his children's families for instance his siblings families there was no contact that was maintained and this was in the days before emails and telephones and mobiles and stuff like that so to try and hunt them down was extremely difficult it was a matter of chance that i actually discovered somebody via twitter actually who actually led me to 
look at Kochi and Arnaculum where I discovered his brother's children are still living there. So it's brought me home in many ways. It's brought me back to my roots in ways that I didn't think was possible. The entire clan actually pulled together and retrieved old letters or scraps of information, photographs, which are now in the book, which have existed and allowed me to piece together really painstakingly the story of this man from nothing, you know, because he was so completely almost as if he lived in a little bubble in which there was his immediate family and there was his job. And very rarely did he go beyond that. Uh, he loved his brother, he adored his mother, but he was not somebody who was very vocal about his emotional life, nor was he someone who was particularly sentimental. So he didn't leave behind any trace of a softer side of VP. In fact, the only soft side that I could find was his great love for his second wife, and his immense love for his stepdaughter, Minakshi. And surprisingly, he has been very vocal there. So that was the only side, a soft side of VP that I could find. Um, and it's been a search that's intrigued me a lot because I don't think it's this hard to piece together someone's life. And yet it's been, it's been incredibly difficult. His first marriage, for instance, there is little to no information that survives about who he married. We just have a first name, Sushila. We don't even have a last name. We don't know what family she came from. We know vaguely that she was from the same village. Uh, we don't know what she looked like. There are no photographs. There are no letters. There is nothing that survives. Uh, we don't know why that marriage broke down. We know that it wasn't a particularly happy marriage, and that's about all we know. We know that there were two sons from that marriage. I am descended from her eldest son. And beyond that, we know nothing else. Why this, this marriage broke down in 1935? Why it broke down, we don't know. We know that there was no attempt to contact her sons after she left. If there was, either those letters were intercepted and then destroyed because nothing survives today. That to me spoke of a rather ruthless side of VP. It was not a side that I personally identify with. Certainly, it was a side that his children never understood. It was also an aspect that impacted uh, his children for years, if not all of their lives. Because my grandfather was about nine when the marriage broke apart. His brother was seven. And they were young, but I mean, to have this happen and at that scale when you're that young or indeed when you're any age is life-changing for you. And, you know, he never, never remembered his mother. And that's another aspect that I found bizarre because obviously the hurt of his mother's exit impacted him so deeply that he never had any memory of what she was like. So there are no memories. Of you, just you said the context, she basically disappeared one day and she never got in touch again. And you yeah. have a moving story in your book about how some 30 years later. Yes. Uh, my, was... my mother remembered that story. Uh, it was something she never forgot. They were in a busy marketplace. And suddenly he said, "That's there's my mother right there. And he ran out of the shop and it was a busy street outside. And the woman who had stirred some instinct in him had disappeared. But to me, that was incredibly poignant because it spoke of a little boy who never stopped looking for his mother. And it also speaks to me of the kind of hurt parent is capable of inflicting on their children. And I have tried to put down the story in complete full as much as I know it because I don't believe that if even if you do have a cruel streak, if you have a particularly ruthless streak, that that should be set aside. Because to me, it spoke a lot about the fact that this was a man who went on to do wonderful things for this country. 
but was capable of immense cruelty in his personal life. He was not a very good father to his sons. He was very emotionally distant. They grew up craving his love, his approval. They always wanted his validation. And strangely, they called him Sir, which again spoke of a very stern, formal aspect of the paternal relationship. On the other hand, he adored his stepdaughter. She was with him when he died. He wanted everything after he was dead to be left to her. And she adored him in turn. So it was a, he was a, obviously a very complex man. So to try and deconstruct that from next to nothing has been hard, very, very hard. And I'd say, you know, when I was reading the book, I thought, okay, there are two sort of challenges in front of you. And one which you've just elaborated upon is when so little is known of his personal life and there's nothing left and he was not really a person who wrote personal letters or stayed in touch with his family. How do you piece a personal life together? That's one challenge. But the other challenge is actually with his political and public life, mm. which is a challenge of figuring out with your additional material what sense to make of the conflicting narratives mm. because in a lot of the key moments in history like for example his relationship with Mountbatten right. Mountbatten was a self-aggrandizing man who took credit for everything in fact Absolutely. what is now called the Mountbatten plan as you have pointed out was the drafted Menon by Menon years before Mountbatten yeah. even came to India it Absolutely. should be called the Menon plan and you know so Mountbatten made it a point to try and take credit for everything that was happening in a similar sense Patel was given a lot of the credit for the behind the scenes work that VP uh, did yeah. there are all kinds of conflicting accounts of what's uh, really going on there because there are the egos of all these big players on the stage and they're all putting forward their side of the story was that a sort of um, challenge for you that how do you build a coherent narrative out of this because VP is obviously also got his strong points of view uh, when it comes to all of this and at times they don't match up with the others so how do you make sense of that that was something that I found I initially want, thought of this as a challenge uh, right because essentially though he never sat for his ICS examinations this guy was a bureaucrat how do you make a bureaucrat stand out political giants you know, he is walking among legends. He is at a point which is a crossroads in India's modern history. How do you make somebody, and it's so easy to stereotype a bureaucrat, right? You think of them as a babu pushing paper. And it was a fascinating aspect for me because when you're talking, when you're talking of an independence movement, you don't necessarily like to think of it as paperwork, personnel uh, shortages, uh, transfers of personnels. You don't like to think of it like that because it's generally, it's a boring aspect. You know, revolution generally makes you think of bloodshed and stirring speeches and wonderful leaders. Uh, you don't think of the civil servants who are actually doing the work behind the scenes. So my greatest fear was, how do I pull out VP Menon from the shadows of the kind of history he was involved with, from the kind of people he was involved with, and make him stand out on his own? To that end, I found that the 18 hours of interviews that uh, Hodgson did with him in 1965, they were a gold mine. They've never been looked at in any narrative of the transfer of power. And... Uh, to me, this was, it was almost criminal because you had his voice. It was him narrating how he had actually worked through from 1918 onwards to 1951. And it brought his story into really vivid life for me, which is why I've allowed his voice to do most of the talking in the biography, because for me, there was no other person who could tell it better. It was also a challenge to me to try and understand 
how he might have felt given the fact that he had just started out in government service when the independence movement was gaining steam and what he must have felt as somebody who's sitting within the walls of the imperial secretariat while his countrymen are clamoring to be free of colonial rule was there a moral dilemma did he ever feel any kind of conflict and in those tapes there is my answer because it turns out he did feel that kind of conflict he genuinely was somebody who believed that look i feel like i can work better against the system if i'm within the system if i can do if i can bring about any kind of constitutional progress that can be my contribution to this country's fight for independence i don't necessarily have to be out there in public meetings in a protests which other people are doing already this is one way in which i can contribute and it also sidetracked me into wondering whether this was just vp who thought like this or were there other people who thought like this and it turns out that there were hvr aingar for instance uh, in his oral histories uh, which he's left behind at tinmurti tells this lovely story of how you know a lot of people in the civil service including aingar was so conflicted about how to deal with this conundrum that they went to sardar patel and they said look are we doing something wrong here shouldn't we be also rebelling like our countrymen are and the sardar thought about this for a minute and then he said no you know i mean when india finally does become independent we're going to need people who are trained we're going to need people who've been there done that and have experience in administration in the do's and don'ts of governance so there should be no conundrum you're doing what is right and will eventually be right for this country because you will be inducted into an independent india civil service so actually speaking it wasn't just vp who felt this way it was there were other people who felt that way as well in the course nearly four decades in government vp was exposed to egos that were huge uh, personalities that were huge uh, often they were too huge to be contained around the same table and for him as he's telling the story it is essentially a sort of clash of different personalities and egos at play that is actually going towards making history what it is you know you had immensely petty arguments you had immensely vicious arguments also sometimes because these were high pressure situations particularly as the country moved into the 1940s tempers were high you know egos were huge vanity was perennially getting wounded and this man had to navigate so many different kinds of personalities and this was not just during the transfer of power but in post transfer power during integration as well for me this was a fascinating sort of tapestry because you had vp actually talking his way around different personalities for instance with mountbatten he had to present his own plan to make it seem like it was mountbatten's idea because he knew that mountbatten liked to take the credit and liked to be center stage so he developed a knack for sort of adapting his ideas to those who were in power so that it would seem like their idea which is i think a major reason why his own contribution has been so downplayed why it's easy to efface vp menon from the face of modern indian history because of this particular knack because he found it best often to let others take credit for ideas that potentially were game changers and that to me was another challenge while i was writing this book because while in his official narratives he's allowed people to take the credit in his oral history he's very clear about certain things and in other people's oral histories as well alan campbell johnson mountbatten himself hvr aingar everyone is equally clear that vp menon did most of the work there was no one in par at that point who did not 
command as much influence as VP. Uh, in fact, even when the partition council was set up, Ainga remembers that every decision was run by. He would sign off on it, even though he wasn't necessarily involved in every single committee that was operating under the council. For me, that's been a fascinating eye opener in and a great insight into how the wheels of power were actually turning at that point. There was a lot happening. It was not necessarily as black and white as we see it today because everything was happening so fast. Um, and there were events of momentous scale happening almost simultaneously. So to actually be in boats at once and navigate such different personalities at the same time required some doing. And he was a doer. So let's kind of get back to biography. And, uh, you know, his childhood was infinitely fascinating to me. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, he's growing up in the village. Yeah. And uh, uh, he's a headmaster's son. And he's, you know, sent to school and all of that. And at some point, this Tamilian headmaster at a future school basically kicks him out. Yeah. <laughs> and then you quote his own words. Like he's very upset. He goes to the banks of the river, yeah. <laughs> presumably cries a bit, kicks the trees. And then he says, quote, I found an empty liquor bottle on the banks of the river. It gave me an idea. I didn't bother to think about it or even about the consequences. I just wanted that Tamilian to pay for what he had done. <laughs> I went to the shop and I told Ahmed, who was the shopkeeper, and I told Ahmed, I wanted some kerosene oil and a matchbox. My mother would send the money later. <laughs> Stop quote. And then he goes and burns down his school. Actually, this this was... A completely sensational reading. I mean, today, the few people who actually remember VP Menon remember the story of a boy who burned down the school. Uh, this was the Autopalam High School, which was basically the common point for most children to come and study. He actually did set it on fire. When I actually asked around, descendants of people who had actually gone to Autopalam High School attested to the fact that VP had actually set the school on fire. It didn't completely burn down. It burned down halfway. But uh, yeah, he did set it on fire. And he's 13 years old. And he's 13 years old. I yeah. mean, there are lots of us who have been 13 and have wanted to burn our schools down too. This boy actually did it. And what was even more interesting to me was that he was so overcome with shame because he'd just been carried away by this rage. And he was then so overcome with horror at what he'd done that he actually ran away from home. The same night. At the same night. And he actually hitches a ride on a train and it carries him to Kolar. And he begins a life there which is completely alien to the life that he's lived in before. He's been this really pampered little boy. Uh, his mother adored him. He adored, ador adored his mother. Uh, he never really did a hard day's work in his life. And here he is suddenly lobbing up in a gold mine. Um, to take up the life of a coolie boy. And he never done any such kind of work in his life before. So, I mean, he suddenly basically changed his life overnight by this one hot-headed act. And his life would never be the same again. He would not go back home until it was time for him to get married. He wanted to actually make something of himself because by this point he's thinking, I have basically set my school on fire. My, I brought shame to my family. What will my mother think of me? I have to now make something of myself to make up for whatever I've done. And he goes to Kolar and he spends five years of his life, five of the most formative years of any child's life, uh, working in a gold mine, first as a coolie. And then he applies with what I thought was great brazenness for the job of an overseer. And to me, that spoke right there of somebody who had almost blind ambition and actually really didn't care what anyone might think. Because, I mean, this is a boy who's not completed his formal schooling. Right. He's not got an examination certificate, 
but he has the audacity to go to a supervisor and basically say look i want to apply for this post and the supervisor gives him the post and it's something that actually marks his career that will mark his career and his personality as the years go by because he's then now prone to doing this he will do it again in 1914 when he applies to the registrar of the home department and basically says look give me a job in the directorate of statistics you know which is a new department that's been set up uh, by the raj to essentially collect really boring statistical information about things like crop output and demographics and rainfall um and he has worked his way northwards from kolar by this point it is 5 years later we are getting ahead of ourselves can i interrupt ahead. you and can yes. you go back sorry. what i uh, found you know i you shouldn't you are right <laughs> the book i should say sorry <laughs> for getting in the way of your narrative no what i found interesting even you know back at otapalam huh. couple of things yeah. one you point out very evocatively the time that he would be waiting for a train at otapalam railway station yeah. and all the people would look after him and he's 12 and 13 yeah. now and all of that and they're giving him little things to eat and drink and then one day one of them gives him the madras mail yes the newspaper and from that day every single day he's reading every single page yeah. he's just sitting there and he's devouring yeah. and he's he's a kid he's 12 years old he's 13 years old at the time he burns the school down and this kind of struck me this hunger to know everything about the world of course yeah. if one of them gave him a smartphone with pubg on it we don't know what would have <laughs> happened but no he's got this hunger for knowledge the other thing that struck me is on how you point out and then you quote him on this that as a train he gets on the train when he's running away from home and uh, then you quote him saying quote that train and forgive my pronunciations uh, my uh, malu friends uh, i am in spirit one of you but my pronunciations are not so great this is vp menon saying quote that train went from ottapalam to lakidi and then parali and then on to olavakode we went through a tunnel at walayar and then we stopped at pothnur and this is he is remembering this in the 1960s this is part of his oral yes. the history that he recorded then so you know almost 50 years later more than 50 years later he remembers all the stops what i find that no one's actually pointed this out is that he had an eidetic memory and that is something that would serve him immensely That's in like a photographic memory. yeah photographic yeah. memory so basically he never forgot anything and it's something that came in incredibly importantly in his career it would come in in collect recollecting memory and as you said it he was always characterized by this really strong hunger to learn it makes you actually wistful thinking of a small boy on a railway platform in the middle of nowhere actually going through paper after paper reading about events that he really has no idea what is going on you know and he is reading about things like the partition of, in bengal and he is reading about you know political debates about international events and he has no clue who these people are or why it's happening at all because life in rural kerala is worlds away from whatever might be happening but it doesn't stop him from thinking about these things from having questions in his head that obviously no one can answer for him at that point but to me sitting a little boy sitting on a platform uh, with you know a cup of chai or coffee and a vada and idli and reading the papers and reading about these men who signed pieces of papers to change history and reconnecting the dots years later when he's actually one of those men signing papers and making history it was as if life had come full circle but he was always characterized by a strong desire to learn it was something that he utilized as he grew up um and i saw it more and more as he entered government service he would he had this knack for taking 
wedges of knowledge and adapting it to a particular situation depending on what position on the in, in government service he was and also depending on the kind of person he is dealing with so that is something that he developed very early on because he had such a head for figures facts for remembering entire pages of information i remember my mother once telling me that he could read one paragraph in the heaviest constitutional prose and you could ask him that same paragraph a week later and he would recite it word for word and it's something that i really enjoyed because it was a it's a characteristic that sounds cliched when you actually talk about it but it was something that was so reflected in how he actually worked his way up and how he utilized that knowledge that i found myself believing it this was somebody who liked to learn this was somebody for whom information was it was pleasure he liked learning and he liked figures facts he wanted to know what made the heart of something tick he wanted to read around it he wanted to read about it it was something that never left him right until the day he died so yeah that was very fascinating for me and and yet he wasn't a bookish kid he was a man of action or a despondent <laughs> kid of action like you point out he burns his school yeah. which is not by the way something we recommend to 13 year old <laughs> listeners of this show you know there are i mean yeah that's a survivorship bias he got away with it but you know you won't don't try it at home and what i'm also struck by is the same night he decides to leave but he doesn't just leave he figures mm. out where he's going to go yeah. in his own words i had heard of the gold fields in kolar i knew i needed money to eat that was the only thought in my head how yeah. to fill my stomach stop quote so there's this pampered entitled kid who runs away yeah and now you've given some uh, perspective on what kolar is in your book which yeah. i think for the listeners is actually pretty useful and i'll quote that bit again how does it feel listening to your words in my voice Very yeah, strange. Very strange. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, in a I, good way. Yeah. I'll, I'll read this bit out again because I think it's important perspective when you just to imagine a thirteen-year-old kid in this place. "Quote: The legend of Kolar's might was not to be trifled with. In 1897, a deadly rockfall and landslide inside the Mysore mine had killed upwards of 50 workers, injuring hundreds more. In January 1906, the wicker roof of one of the mining cages caught fire, killing six workers and injuring ten others. Sickness was a constant specter. Cholera, dysentery, malaria, asthma, and lung cancer raged through the coolie settlements." picking of those who survived the horrors of the underground when dusk fell workers would stumble out of their mines and their workstations and many would turn their faces towards the local liquor shops or gambling dens even the wives and children waited for them at home the sky was perennially contaminated by smoke billowing from the tall brick chimneys that dotted the fields the horizon was marred by a huge contraption with rotating wheels on top He would later learn that this was a great lift that conveyed men from the surface of the earth to his bowels. The mines rumbled all day long with the occasional explosion, dynamite blasting through rock, shaking the earth and showering the debris and dust on workers in the adjacent narrow passes. Temperatures raged up to 157 degrees Fahrenheit. Stop quote. And the temperature is of course inside the mines. <laughs> and what also struck me what you pointed out is that the englishman that he dealt with at this point in time hmm. did not care that he did not have a school leaving certificate yeah. or whatever yeah. they were willing to evaluate him on his own merits and this is exactly a trope that continues for the rest of his life yes. where he rises to the top of the civil service without giving the ics examination Absolutely. and at every step it is you know even when he's sort of uh, 
treated badly like when Mountbatten first comes to India yeah. and he's a reforms commissioner but Mountbatten's got his own team and he wants nothing to do with him absolutely. but then at some point he doesn't have a choice yeah. because VP is simply the best brain out there and absolutely. He, he kind of has to work with it so you know so kind of Kolar happens and you point out about how Kolar taught him to be thrifty mm. uh, because he was earning so little and he wanted to send money home and how it taught him to compartmentalize his emotions into separate watertight boxes, uh, which you say will be became a blessing and a curse in later years. So when you say it became a blessing and a curse in later years, I'm presuming you mean it became a blessing in the workspace. Yes, it was not a, a curse uh, yeah, at home. Absolutely. It was anything but a blessing at home. So from here, from Kolar, he then, this young teenager then lands up in Bombay. Yeah. Tell me about this. For one, I agree when you say he encountered really supportive English supervisors through the rest of his career and his life. And which is why I found uh, Kolar completely fascinating. Because like I said, they're transformative years for any child's life. For VP, they've changed him completely in ways that I think he didn't even expect. And when we're talking about a pampered, privileged kid running off to Kolar, I think it also speaks a lot about kid who was incredibly practical and had a lot of pride as well. He knew that he needed food to eat, but he also knew that he was not going to go home, face his parents and, you know, admit to what he'd done. He'd much rather go off, try to do something that makes something of himself and send money back home. That's incredibly uh, self-sufficient. It is a survival tactic. It also speaks of a lot, like I said, a lot of practicality and pride. He is blessed completely when he meets supervisors who don't want a matriculation examination certificate. It is the first time that he actually encounters someone who says, it doesn't matter what your credentials are on a piece of paper, don't matter. And that's something that he's going to carry with him for the rest of his life. And we can talk about that later, of course. But, you know, when he gets sacked from Kolar, he basically starts working his way northwards. He And the information here is incredibly sketchy. There is a point when he is, he's first gone to Bangalore, where he works as a clerk in the Imperial Tobacco Company. From there, he goes to Indore. And these are events that have been pieced together from what he told various other people. So there is a lot of there is a lot of oral history here, but also recollections of what others remembered of VP's childhood as well. Um, so he went to he also went to Indore to try and teach the kid of a landed gentleman English. He then ends up in Bombay and he is selling hand towels outside Victoria Terminus. And again, not a life that he's used to. He's done several menial things along the way by now. Selling towels doesn't seem to be anything different. Uh, and he's essentially going through a period of great emotional turmoil, understandably so. He goes to sleep one day and he wakes up to find that his gold eardrop has been stolen. And he's almost in tears because this he's now been away from home for so long. And he's now been on his own for so long and fending for himself for so long that on one hand it's become almost part of his character on the other hand he's still a boy who misses home and misses his mother and he doesn't know what he's doing here and these to me are moments where the boy is becoming a man but very reluctantly so they are experiences that are teaching him extremely hard things I don't think any... he's been cruelly pushed into manhood rather than I guess becoming yeah it's a man. not a simple transition for him you know because and it's let me say right now that this was a choice he made when he chose to run away from home uh, indeed when he chose to set his school on fire it was a choice he, that he made 
This was the choice made for him by whoever left that empty liquor <laughs> bottle on the, uh, you know, seashore. That had he just carried the bottle away, the idea might yeah, not have knows? stopped VP man. And who, who knows? knows? Yeah, it's just. So I mean, you know, he's essentially the transition from boyhood to manhood has not been simple so far. He's had to. He's been kicked out of several jobs. He has basically. He feels like he's let down his family in more ways than one. At this point, his father's also died. His mother is not doing so well either. And he thinks, and he's plagued by the thought that he might just end up being a nobody from nowhere. And again, fate steps in, and he is given. He's chanced upon by this gentleman who English gentleman who works in the government of India and the Home Department. Now, who this person is, we don't know. We merely know that he was given a letter of recommendation, which he was instructed to carry to Delhi, and he was basically told that, look, you go to the government of India and you basically use this letter to apply for a job. And he does that because by this point he doesn't know what else to do, so he goes off there. At this point, he doesn't even know that he has to sit for the ICS examinations. I think that's a thought that never crossed his head until he was very well within the walls of the secretariat. And then he only realized when he first arrived in Delhi, clutching a letter, he was just a boy looking for a job. That that was it. He was thinking of nothing like academic credentials or professional qualifications. He was just looking for a way to survive. And he, this part of the story is. Another part that's gone down in the legend that surrounds VP Menon, right? Because we've heard of how he reaches Delhi and his pocket is picked, and he basically reaches Delhi in the spring of 1914, um, and he's 21 years old by this point. And he uh, arrives to find that the government of India has essentially packed its bags and gone off to Simla, as it does every year. But he wasn't to know that, so he was just basically told, "Please go back, catch another train, and go to Simla." And he arrives at the station and finds his wallet has been stolen. Now, in legend, it's gone down that it was a kindly sardarji who gave him the money. Actually, what happened was that it was a fellow Malu who gave him the money, and this fellow Malu will play a huge role in his life later on. Though he's not to know that now, but he's given the money uh, to go off to Simla. He arrives in Simla, goes to Gorton Castle, presents the letter, and is told, "Boss, we don't have any openings." And he's dumbstruck because he was under the rather naive impression that if this gentleman had given him a letter of recommendation, there must be a job. How can there not be a job? And he persists and he says, "There must be something you can do." And these guys say, "Okay, fine. There's this clerk who's gone off on vacation. He's gone for two months. You're free to join for two months, but that's all we can give you. It's a temporary job. If you want it, you can have it." And he takes it. Um, and it's again, it's a life-changing moment for him because. It's also a moment that speaks to me of a lot of desperation because there is zero way that he can go back now with nothing. And he's heard about government service. He doesn't know what it entails, but he's heard that once you get into government service, it can give you a good life and a stable life, which is what he's looking for. And at this point, he is just driven by questions of survival. How do you survive? How do you make money? How do you keep your stomach full? And he says, "Okay, fine, I'll take the job." and in those two months he's also hunting for more permanent forms of employment nothing is coming along and the directorate of statistics which i referred to earlier that's set up and he thinks what the hell i will just put in a word i will apply directly to the registrar and see what he can do and again it's the same it's the same sort of brazen devil may care attitude that supported him earlier this is somebody who 
never seemed to care that he had anything to lose. He always went at life like there he had nothing to lose. As Dylan once wrote, "If he ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose." Absolutely. Which at every stage of his life, <laughs> he ain't got nothing, so Absolutely. he was just going for it. Yeah. <laughs> so he was just going for it, and it's something that I really admired at the outset. You know, you've got nothing. You've got no academic credentials. You're a temporary typist, uh, and yet you have the audacity to write a letter and say, "Look, there's a directorate that's opening up. It's going to need manpower. Here I am. What do you say?" and the registrar and this file actually still exists in the national archives right it's this really ancient brittle file but it has vp's first letter in 1914 and it has the registrar's reply as well saying that we've considered your application and you're good to go and he's packing his bags to go from simla to delhi when the first world war breaks out yet again a game changing moment for vp because once the war breaks out officials are going back home they're going to enlist in the war more spaces are opening up So he's got a good chance of making this work for the first time. Uh he's still not a confirmed employee of the government of India and this is something that's going to be true of his career for the next 4 years. He will not be a confirmed employee. He will be bobbing from department to department. He worked in the directorate of statistics for a while. Uh he would then go on to work as a clerk in the in Lady Harding's medical college committee. he would do really temporary stuff which sort of stop gap employments you know one month two months six months and this was to continue until edwin montague became secretary of state for india and when montague goes ahead and makes uh, his famous august 20th declaration which is essentially speaking to the fact that one day and that day is not specified right now but one day india will have the right to self governing institutions and montague himself is somebody who's creating a lot of waves for very different reasons in whitehall because montague is very mercurial very temperamental also loves the limelight as a certain viceroy will decades later but montague is also rather radical in his outlook as far as the colony is concerned he is somebody who feels that look if you're giving indians a westernized form of education if you're teaching them to think like us they will think like us why will they not want independence at some point um and vp's heard montague's speech on the radio and he's completely startled by this he's never heard this kind of speech before and in his later years when he's actually talking to harry hodson about this he says Montague was somebody I thought was a real visionary and if he had been allowed to stay he could have done wonderful things at that point. We all know history didn't go quite that way. But anyway, Edwin Montague's coming out to India in the winter of 1917 and this is when the first sort of germs of the reforms branch are put together. So Montague essentially will need a roving sort of branch to accompany him across the country as he he's undertaking a tour. He's going to various provinces, he's going to princely states to basically meet political leaders, princes, etc., get their opinions about the ideas that he's got for India. Accompanying him will be a small team, typists, stenographers, clerks, and it will be headed by somebody called William Maris. Now this wasn't called the reforms branch at this point. It was called the emergency branch. but essentially it was what would become the reforms branch later william maris was technically india's first reforms commissioner though that post hadn't been invented yet maris and montague would not get on but it was a a moment that changed vp's career because he has now gone from a minuscule salary to 120 rupees a month uh plus 2 rupees for traveling allowance he is now for the first time exposed to what goes on behind making laws that can potentially change history 
and it's nothing as soul stirring as he probably thought it was it was essentially a lot of bickering and squabbling over redrafting sentences over changing the position of uh, a clause you know should clause a b clause c instead does that give the this act more weight it's stuff that can be mind numbingly boring and yet because it was being played out in front of him he would eventually be maris's go to person in the sense that he was primary typist that maris would essentially have in the room to basically take notes you know redraft certain pages and phrases so he was present when maris and montague began squabbling began arguing and again this is not something that's found its way into his own official narrative of this this is something that lived in his memory and he spoke about this to hartson years later after he'd quit government service and the fights between maris and montague actually come alive when vp talks about this uh, you know he's basically talking about two different people with two very different perspectives on how this should go for india maris didn't agree with a lot of what montague was saying maris had to shut up about it for so long that eventually it began to affect the working of the entire team because maris would take to sulking and montague would take to being incredibly irritated and frustrated and eventually you know dams of frustration burst and there would be screaming matches you would be thumping the table and telling maris that he had been basically hired to do this particular job and if he didn't want to do it he could get out and to all of this vp was privy right so he's sitting there he's now seeing actually what happens behind the scenes for the first time he's exposed to high pressure situations uh to huge egos to how badly tempers can fray under pressure he's also exposed to the real boring aspect of reform not all reform is revolutionary this is the kind of reform that takes years to put together almost that takes weeks of sleepless nights where you sit up and you basically read the same thing over and over again until it reads better and that i think impacted his career hugely because most of his career was built on knowledge that he gained first hand this was a knowledge that you could gain from a book this was a knowledge that you could gain from sitting for any kind of exam this was knowledge that you got only by being in the same room as the people making the laws as the people making history and it involved a lot of stuff that he had expected he would always remember those moments as being very crucial to how he actually went about the business of making laws and making amendments to various laws because he watched maris being unable to to navigate as far as montague was concerned and he realized that you know what sometimes you have to navigate through different personalities you have to be able to sort of slip and slide your way through until you get your point heard it need not always involve a shouting match it can of course sometimes under high pressure situations but he basically learned his art of diplomacy and i don't say this lightly i think he was the greatest uh, internal diplomat that we've had as well because he was navigating two different parties at one point in his life he was navigating three different political interests and formulating two different countries at the end of his career not to mention dealing with independent states so he was in very he received his training 100% on the job and i think that is something that makes his story unique it makes his own career and his own life stand apart because this was knowledge that he couldn't have gained from a book In fact you know it struck me while reading your book and I had a sense of this even before reading your book because 
everyone sort of knows VP Menon, and I, I I read one of his books while prepping for my one of my earlier episodes with Srinath Raghavan. And it struck me totally that he is probably a greatest civil servant. I mean, I can't even see how you would make a shortlist uh, at all. I mean, he's just clearly the obvious choice for all the remarkable things he did. And what's interesting and what your book brings out is that his biography prepared him for it, that everything that was happening in his life was almost like an academy for what would happen in the 1940s at that crucial moment our nation was born. For example, in 1914, you've quoted from a letter he's written to his brother where he's saying, God has been very kind to me. I have been given my fair share of second and third chances. I will make this one work. Stop quote. And then the Department of Statistics was very sort of interesting to me. He didn't stay there long. Yeah. But what you've written about it, and again, I'll quote your words. Quote, the modern but dingy offices of the newly established Directorate of Statistics embodied the Raj's passion for statistics and recorded information, the size and diversity of India in its population, its geography and agricultural produce made its imperative for its quote-unquote masters to keep painstaking records of changes in demography, crop production and price rainfall, industrial production, education, sanitation, mining and transport. The directorate had been established in April 1914 with this ambitious goal in mind. The compilation of this information was probably as crashingly boring as it sounds. But to VP, it was eye-opening. For the first time in his life, he was given a bird's-eye view of the science of India. Stop quote. And what you referred to earlier that, you know, people often think of the, you know, if you're talking about the shaping of a nation, you yeah. think of grand speech, great yeah. ideas. Yeah. These are the high principles. Yeah. But here is someone who 33 years before India actually becomes independent. Yeah. is actually learning the country through statistics, through data, through this yeah. mindless log of trying to figure it out which sounds both to me fantastically boring and incredibly inspiring. So that's a good note to take a quick commercial break while we figure out which one it is. If you're listening to The Seen and the Unseen, it means you like listening to audio and you're thirsty for knowledge. That being the case, I'd urge you to check out Storytel, the sponsors of this episode. Storytel is an audiobook platform that has a massive range of audiobooks from around the world. Their international collection is stellar, but so is a local collection. They have a fantastic range of Marathi and Hindi audiobooks. What's more, I do a weekly podcast there called The Book Club with Amit Varma, in which I talk about one book every week, giving context, giving you a taste of it and so on. Download that app and listen to my show and as long as Storytel sponsors this show within this commercial itself, I will recommend an audiobook that I liked on that platform every week. My recommendation for this week is Where India Goes by Diane Coffey and Dean Spears. This book takes a closer look at how Indians go to the toilet and has some startling insights about open defecation. Coffey and Spears argue that the practice of open defecation is not just a result of poverty but a direct consequence of the caste system. Listen to the book for more or check out episode 82 of The Seen and the Unseen where I discuss just this with Shruti Rajgopalan. We spoke about this book as well so do listen to it in Storytel. Where India Goes by Diane Coffey and Dean Spears. Download the Storytel app or visit Storytel.com. Remember the Storytel with a single L. Storytel.com Welcome back to The Scene and the Unseen. I'm chatting with Narayani Basu about our greatest civil servant, VP Menon. If you don't agree with that judgment, kindly tell me who is our greatest civil servant then. And we've right now come up to the late 1910s. Montague's in town. 
VP is part of what will later become the reforms uh, branch, but it's now called something else. And and like you pointed out, it's a learning experience from him again, quoting from your book, quote, watching the men, listening to their debates, typing their dictation. He learned how to think around a problem, how to work on contingency solutions, to always have a backup plan and how to factor in positives in order to neutralize a heavily negative situation. More importantly, as he watched different personalities clash or meld with each other, he began to understand the very real skill that was required to negotiate the choppy waters of the human ego. Stop quote. And what's also interesting here is that there is an event around this time that also affects him deeply. And that's Jalyan Walaba. Yeah, that's something that he that I actually found that he'd actually left behind a letter as to that. And he writes, it is in fact an event that actually kickstarts the moral dilemma that I was referring to earlier. Jallianwala Bagh, when it happens and he reads about it in the papers and he is really furious. Uh, these are people who on the one hand have been very kind to him, have given him opportunities that he didn't dream were possible. And yet these were the people who were also leading to mass scale massacres across the country. And Amritsar really shook him for the first time, questioned what he was doing here within the walls of these, the very government that was carrying out this oppression and carrying out this bloodbath. What was he doing here? And he goes through a period where he is questioning this, but also what is dominating his mind at this point is that he still needs to get a permanent place. He still needs a job. This is still a moment of great, it's actually a moment of even greater conflict because on the one hand, you have his incredible need to survive, bal trying to balance out with a question of what am I doing here? Why am I here? Shouldn't I be out there with these people? These are my countrymen and they are getting slaughtered. What should I do? And at this point, the reforms department forms in 1922. And that's three years later, no doubt. But he's carrying this burden right through. It is only in 1922 that he actually gets a letter confirming him. And he no longer has this sort of sword hanging over his head that you are not a, like a permanent employee that you can be sacked at any time. That allows him actually some breathing room to think about this properly. I actually found that in the mid-1920s, early to mid-1920s, is actually when VP starts thinking about this far more introspectively. And he comes to what I feel is a very cold-blooded decision because this was a time when, a, when the country was actually being swept along on a tidal wave of emotion and nationalism. VP, on the other hand, has taken this really cool decision, right? It's a very cool brain decision because he's thinking, that's great. They are out there protesting. What about how to make actual change happen? He had no desire to actively join politics. He'd been given a letter of confirmation, which meant that he was within the system. He may have been a clerk, but he was within the system. Do you think, did he think he could move up from there? Was it possible? And this moment is the moment that sparked his actual ambition to start moving upwards, to start climbing the ladder of government service. Um, until then, it had primarily been driven by how to keep his pockets full and how to not make a greater ass of himself than he already felt he had made. Now it was a more detached decision that he took, that this was actually something he could work with. He'd been given a chance to actually work, be in government service and try and change the system from within. 
and his ambition to actually rise to the top started from now this is actually the moment that sees vp menon beginning to work towards rising up in the path that he's chosen for himself and it ties up beautifully with whatever he's faced before because he's by this time been exposed to really nitty gritty stuff of administration he's seen that a country doesn't really run on soul stirring speeches alone it doesn't only run without it doesn't run with no vision at all and even if you have a vision there are cogs behind that vision that that are required for that vision to be to work and he's worked in enough mundane departments and done enough mundane duties by now to know that behind revolution is administration you need people who can administer who can actually take care of that aspect and he feels it, for me it's lovely because you're actually he's actually been put through his paces in ways that ICS officials proper would not necessarily have been through the same position he's actually started right from the bottom and he can now work his way to the top the advantage of starting right from the bottom and this is something he would advocate years later he would always tell uh, his sons that in fact he would tell my grandfather that my grandfather would go on to become director of itc but he always told my grandfather look you start from the floor of the plant and work your way up so that when you are sitting at the top you know everything that's happening in the plant you know how to roll a cigarette even or the science behind it as well i think that's something that mattered hugely to vp for him it was not just administration it was what went on behind administration as well facts and figures may sound boring to many of us and to me as well when i was doing the research for this particular part of his life it was insanely boring but it was also immensely crucial you cannot build a country without knowing almost intimately how it functions and the director of statistics in that sense i think gave him for the first time an almost aerial view of a how vast this country is and b how many factors you have to take into consideration to actually pull it together as one cohesive unit of governance so yes i think it ties in a lot with the point that you raised earlier like everything was an academy that put him through his paces and you know a couple of things strike me here one of course is that if you're listening to this episode now you might wonder a little bit about vp's dilemma at working with the british and at the same time feeling a sympathy for his people but that's simply because we've normalized this notion of india as it is today and we think back on the british as the enemy but this was not the case at that point in time the british were administrating the country there was no india yeah. ideas of india if at all they existed were diffused and I up agree. in the air yes. and vp is just trying to figure out i would guess within his you know the limitations of what he can do and cannot do that how best can i make a contribution in this yeah. and um, what's also interesting is that he's actually in the one department of the british indian government where he can make that difference he's in the reforms department it's this is going to be this yeah. is the place this yeah. is the center yeah you know and he's actually drafted in there only because of his experience with marison montague right because he was a member of the core team that actually accompanied montague he was deemed as somebody who had sufficient experience to carry on into the formalized branch of the reforms department and he would never actually leave the reforms department that would be where he stayed throughout his career in government till india became yeah. independent and it i think as you say it was really fitting that he would end up in the one branch that was set up to actually implement reform it had a very shaky beginning because it would shut down and reopen a couple of times before it 
reopened for good in the 1930s and you know in between then he was drafted to the services of Malcolm Haley and you know he was working with people independently outside the reforms branch when it closed so it had a very shaky sort of start but it was the actual branch that would go on to implement reform that would see to constitutional progress so he was actually very fortunately in a position to actually make his ambition succeed and i think that's incredibly unique and it's also serendipitous as i said very few people actually got to do that no and it's serendipitous for india also because you know you get the nuts and bolts of what is really happening between 47 and 51 as the union kind of comes together yeah. and it almost strikes you that you needed one guy to be there yeah. you know if he didn't exist you would have to invent him and you cannot invent <laughs> people whole scale so you know it's kind of it's not necessary that we would have come together the way we did you know i feel like when we look at the history of our transfer of power what we forget very easily is that much of the sweeping changes that were brought about politically legally constitutionally were just done by a handful of men i mean the independence uh, indian independence bill for instance was actually essentially the work of four men who had to basically deconstruct three and a half centuries of british rule in a matter of weeks and vp of course leading and vp is leading that uh, so you know i mean it's very easy to sort of overlook that and it's easy to let civil servants as a entire class sort of slide under the radar and it to me that's something that needs to be focused on more it's one of the reasons why i wrote this story because you don't think of a revolution in terms of nuts and bolts you don't think of a transfer of power in terms of nuts and bolts and as you said the formation of the union of india the integration of the country itself was something that was at that point carried out almost single handedly by vp menon he worked himself almost to death during that point because he was crisscrossing the country going to 565 princely states so even in the 1920s going into the 1930s it, it was still really an arduous process because you had all these different ideas of where india was supposed to be going you know one idea was being discarded another was being picked up in accordance with shifting times and shifting political moods and it was still very difficult to try and pin down what India looked like at that point in the late 20s and 30s there were still ideas of federal india being tossed about what would a federal india mean you know what was the position of the princely states within the federal india there were questions that uh, nobody had really thought of and were now being almost deconstructed forensically as such and vp was at the sidelines at this point he was still a clerk at this point and yet it was a curious juxtaposition because even while he was at the sidelines he was also at the front line of uh, political reform so it was a very curious position to be in because he is somebody who is essentially meant to be taking notes etc at this point and yet in 1930 he is told by Hawthorne Lewis who is his supervisor in the reforms department look come with me to london for the first round table conference and again he's gone as a member of a secretariat he is essentially sitting there at the sidelines but he is actually seeing leading figures of the indian independence movement he's seeing gandhi getting out from his car he's uh, making friends with the raja of sarila 
In fact, you've pointed out how Hawthorne Lewis told him at this point in time, uh, quote, open your mouth when you have an idea, VT. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll be lost in the crowd. Yeah. Stop, quote. So, yeah. you know, again, another British supervisor taking him under his wing and giving him the courage to actually speak out. And what was kind of interesting and how you point out about how this journey changed him forever was that there's this 1930 roundtable conference in London and he's going on this ship called the SS Multan. Multan yeah. And everybody's there. Yeah. Gandhi's there, Jinnah's there, the whole gang is there. And yeah. in fact, Jinnah becomes a close pal of his. That actually was, it's sort of heartwarming because you, you know, we, when we read about Jinnah today, we know the Jinnah that we associate with in the 40s and the formation of Pakistan. And Jinnah was never someone you can understand even today. I think even his most dedicated biographers were never really able to pin down Jinnah and who Jinnah was. But in 1925 is when VP actually meets Jinnah for the first time. And this is with the Madiman Committee, which has basically been set up to sort of investigate the workings of the Government of India Act 1919. And VP is again at the back, in the background. He is the person who's basically filing the papers and putting them back into their boxes and very mundane stuff like that. And this is a room that's filled with the political bigwigs at that time, Tej Bahadur Sapru, people of his ilk. And Jinnah sort of strolls up to VP and says, uh, have you had lunch yet? And VP is considerably taken aback. And he says, no, I'm, I was going to get something from the mess. And Jinnah says, why would you do that? Let's have lunch. And so they went off to lunch. They went to Cecil Hotel. And he still remembered, after all those years, he still remembered the kind of looks he got when he entered the hotel with Jinnah. And Jinnah was a rising star in Indian politics at that point. You know, he was brilliant. He was not the twisted man that he became later, but he was very avuncular at that point. This was a very approachable Jinnah. This was some Jinnah who liked to take young men under his wing and sit and chat with them. And that's what he does uh, in 1925, as well as in 1930, VP encounters uh, Jinnah on board the SS Multan and the ship docks in Cairo on the way to London. And Jinnah takes VP basically on a tour of Cairo and he is basically sitting with Jinnah in the car discussing the history of Egypt, the politics of not only Egypt but also the world. He's taken by Jinnah to lunch at one of Cairo's finest hotels. He can still remember that that was the first time he ate fresh dates. And it's life-changing for VP because at this point he didn't ever really consider that he would be in contact with people that he just read about. These had once been names on pieces of paper to him and now here they were in the flesh. And not all of them were bad. They were human and they weren't unkind to him. He also remembered uh, at one point when the uh, reforms branch had shut down that he worked very briefly with Malcolm Haley. And Malcolm Haley was also somebody that VP remembered very warmly in, throughout his life. So he had made friends by this point with people from both sides. And he had encountered English supervisors who put a lot of merit into the kind of ideas you gave. They put more merit onto your actual work rather than who you were or where you were from or where you'd studied. He became good friends with most of his supervisors, in fact, with Hawthorne Lewis, quite excellent friends. Um, and Lewis actually recognized VP's talent, as I've said in my book, and he encouraged it. He insisted that VP open his mouth and speak when he had an idea. He was never somebody who told VP, you know, to shut up. And so they go to London and London itself is eye-opening for VP, right? He's now in the capital of the empire, essentially. He's seeing a different society. He's seeing for the first time that, you know, it's okay if the driver of your car enters the same restaurant and eats at the same restaurant as you are. He's hobnobbing with 
the leading lights of india's independence including movement. all the princes he will get to know more intimately raja in the, the raja of sarala is uh, became in fact quite a good friend at this point and the raja of sarala was a minor state in central india and sarala was there representing some of the minor princes for the round table conference and he would become he as well as his son narendra would become very good friends with vp during the course of vp's government career but the raja was never somebody who was standoffish or aloof he was very charming he was cultured uh, he was very debonair uh, but he treated vp as an equal and vp learned more than he ever dreamed that he would you know first of all it was a moment of immense personal achievement you know he has gone overseas for the first time he's standing in the savoy hotel he's standing at what he feels is a milestone in his career and his life both he doesn't know whether he'll even come back again but here he is and he's determined to make the most of it he's also exposed to different ideas at this point so there was a very vocal section of women in england at that point who were demanding equal rights for electoral franchise and he knows that in india as well there have been women who have been demanding equal voting rights sarojini naidu mrinalini sen all of them felt that look if we are subjects of the empire we pay our taxes why are we not being given the right to vote and have a say in the future of our country vp himself is from a extremely strong matrilineal background he likes independent strong women and he agrees with this he feels why should then why should they not be given a chance but these are for now ideas that he will internalize they will come to play almost 7 years later in 1937 but for now it's just a moment of real discovery for him because he's finding out that nobody however high a rank they hold uh felt it was beneath them to associate with a mere clerk uh he was treated as an equal by prince and politician alike and it was an experience that again changed his perspective on what politics was and what life was also and that was a milestone in his career at that point you know speaking of your friendship with jinna and of course you go on to write how in the book you know vp would not recognize the jinna he would meet in yeah, the 40s yeah, and yeah. so changed from this but i was sort of reminded of an earlier anecdote uh, which you briefly mentioned in your book i mean firstly you know you refer to jinna in 25 as a rising star i would say he was more kind of an eclipse star already he was a rising star perhaps in the 1910s and at one point he was you know after gokhale and ferocious mehta and you know that mm. those moderates from the party died everyone expected jinna to sort of be the next face yeah. of the congress party and gandhi was a marginal figure at that time and then gandhi took over the congress party with his uh, you know by getting together with the ali brothers in the whole khilafat movement yeah, and that's a yeah. story in itself but the anecdote that struck me was where you point out that in 1920 in the congress session at one point jinna protests against what the ali brothers and gandhi are planning and he says that that is not the constitutional way and then mohammad ali stands up and he tells him the story of how a tory was once at piccadilly square yeah. and uh, there was a preacher there who was talking about who was trying to convert everyone there and saying this is god's way come to god's way and the tory went and asked the preacher that tell me how long have you been following god's way and the guy said 20 years yeah and he said in 20 years has got you as far as piccadilly way no thank yeah, you yeah. and it's a very telling story because it's also sort of telling jinnah that okay the moderates have failed yeah you know yeah. that the constitutional way of nauroji and ranade and gokhale and mehta and uh, to some extent motilal nehru also up till this point and now jinnah himself has failed and you need something more radical and that's yeah. the direction of the khilafat movement and gandhi of course who is a true radical and it's very interesting because what 
and I'm just thinking aloud here, but it strikes me that the department that VP is now part of is pursuing the constitutional way. Yeah. In the sense, piecemeal changes and, you know, there is a process, there is a system, nothing radical. And yet, at the end of his career, what he then has to do is something quite radical where he has to sort of frame a new system almost by himself. I mean, that whole act of getting all the princes into the union mm. is something that no constitutional way will get you. Absolutely, it's, absolutely. It's, and I think it's important to remember here that there was no one formula for what the constitutional way was at that point. In the 1920s, 30s, you were just basically figuring it out. You know, you were people who were basically sitting down around a table you know, coming to several deadlocks along the way, but you were essentially trying to talk it out. And you didn't really know what would happen, you know, because I mean, in the 30s, there was the idea of federal India. By the 40s, the idea of federal India had been thrown out of the window. So events were moving so blindingly fast that essentially you had to adapt your ideas according to the events that were following and the fallout of the events that were following as well. You know, because in the 30s, uh, and I've talked about this in the book as well, where Hawthorne Lewis basically introduces VP to Lin Lithgow. And VP, essentially, Lin Lithgow asks Hawthorne Lewis, what is the way forward here? And VP for the first time opens his mouth in front of the Viceroy and says, take defense and external affairs from the princess. In fact, you, I'll read out the quote from your book. Yeah. Uh, what VP says is, quote, if we get the princess to agree to hand over defense, foreign affairs and communications to the British government, our path might be smoother. We can leave finances out of the picture for now. They don't need to have any obligations towards the crown at the moment. Stop quote. This is 1935. This is 1935. This is also a point where VP has realized that the princes are now backing away from federation and that if Lindutko doesn't act fast, the whole idea of federation might fall through. Right. So it's another example of how VP's taken the knowledge that he's accumulated at a particular point and is using it in an adapted version at a later point in his career. It's also a remarkable statement of great foresight because this essentially will be the foundation of whatever he's prescribing through the years. Right. So he's basically grasped this in 1935, which is over a decade before actual independence. And in 47, for, you know, those listeners who don't know, this is exactly the package that was offered to all the princely states that yeah. only hand over defense, foreign affairs and yeah. communications. And, you know, the, you otherwise are in control. Absolutely. And this is, uh, like you say, this is 1935. Uh, the princes are now backing away from federation. Linlithko has essentially basically arrived in India to try and implement federation as fast as possible. And VP offers him this formula. Linlithko rejects it. And it is one of the first times that VP has encountered ingrained racial prejudice, as well as an ingrained systemic prejudice, because uh, Lindutko is somebody who loves protocol and is almost a rabid fan of protocol. He certainly doesn't like an Indian talking to him in this fashion. And it makes matters worse that this is a junior. It is not anyone in a position of power. Although for all practical purposes, VP is already the right-hand man of the Reforms Commissioner, which is... It doesn't uh, matter to Lindico. It doesn't matter to Lindico because he's yeah. just seeing a native guy speaking out of turn. Because, you know, I mean, VP would go to Lindico twice during Lindico's tenure and put forward adapted versions of this. In 41, again, he would go to Lindico and say this again. Uh, so he he basically put himself out on the limb twice. Uh, during Linlithgow's tenure in India. And it never mattered to Linlithgow. It was a point that was of great and abiding resentment for VP because he just felt that Linlithgow had basically thrown away chances of 
putting together unified india as far as it was possible by ignoring the plan that he had actually put forward twice not once but twice but going back to your original point i think we were just figuring out what was the constitutional way forward I mean, because events were changing so fast you had to have somebody who was thinking on his feet practically because that was something that you needed you needed somebody who had a brain that was agile enough to adapt to the changing circumstances assess the implications of the circumstances and their consequences and what that could mean for the future of the country and use that to form formulate a process of constitutional reform and i think the fact that vp encountered supportive supervisors like hawthorn lewis like in 1941 as he would encounter harry hodson um it was incredibly formative and supportive for his career as well these were men who allowed him to think and allowed him to put forward his ideas and opinions in fact in 37 linithgow would give vp card blanche to go ahead and form the electoral rolls for the 1937 election where as you pointed out he included women in the rolls that was the of, first time and again was a, this was something he'd seen in 30 And, and in fact this is the first time i read about it has it really been remarked upon that it you know, hasn't you know it hasn't it's one line in the great divide by harry hodson and it's never really been remarked upon at all which is i think another really sad fallout of the fact that vp has been allowed to languish in obscurity all this time because this is a change that continues until today that has had a lasting effect on the way we look at our voting rights i mean he would go ahead and give uneducated people the right to vote as well by putting symbols onto ballot papers because so the hand and the jharu and all that is all yeah, there because of and his, and his whole idea of that stemmed from his own experience he never completed his education either but he didn't see why that should stop you from having a say in the direction in which your country goes Uh, so you know he would push for gov- provincial governments to lower the uh, average educational standard of an average voter because he kept insisting how does that matter just because you don't have a formal degree or a formal piece of paper that determines your academic credentials doesn't mean that you don't have opinions of where the country is going or where you want your country to go so why should you not have a say and i think these are contributions that actually need to be highlighted much more than they have do- been done so far and of course you had rhetoric on these subjects in the political arena but it took someone to actually sit down and frame these rules like you point out at the time of working on the government of india act in 1935 you write quote vp wondered whether anyone really realized the sheer amount of work that went into making a modern nation it was all very well to make impassioned speeches about swaraj but the tedium and technicality that formed the cogs of these dreams and which would bring them to fruition was stupendous and yet he clearly enjoyed juggling so many balls it was in every way why he had persisted with government service so tell me a bit about this period of time what is the government of india act what is vp's role on it you know and what is its sort of relevance and resonance for future events so the government of india act 1935 was essentially put in place as a result of the ruminations of the round table conferences that had come before uh the idea was to basically put in place a federal india we basically wanted a stronger center we wanted uh powers to be given to the center and the provinces basically were to accede to what would become a federal uh india the princes were given a choice at that point but they were essentially told that a united federal india could only succeed if half of the princes of the total number of princes acceded to what would become the constituent assembly the government of india act would also become the backbone of 
India's constitutional progress until our own constitution of India, independent India, came into being in 1950. It was the constitution that would remain as a sort of framework for VP's own ideas for the transfer of power later. VP's role here was essentially to a help in the drafting of the act and b supervise the elections that were to follow in 37 as a result of the act. That was his mandate, which was given to him by Hawthorne Lewis. Uh, Lewis was not keeping very well at this point. He was very brilliant, but he was very sickly. And the upshot of that was that a lot of the legwork and paperwork was given to VP. Lewis felt that since he had taken VP to London, VP had actually been there present at the conferences at the conference in 1930. That VP had enough first-hand knowledge to actually take on a burden of this uh, scale and scope. He would be there in a supervisory capacity, but he said, "Look, if you can pull this off, we'll think about getting you a promotion." And this is—it also might be remembered at this point that this is not a very easy time for VP personally. Thirty-five is also the year in which his marriage was in first marriage was imploding. Um, so he, this is a man who is completely torn apart in his personal life, but has been given the task to start the process of constitutional reform, actually ruling for India. Right, because th- the government of India 30- Act 35 is considered to be one of the most substantial contributions to India's constitutional progress, and VP is not unaware of the hugeness of the task he's been given. He basically throws himself into the- his work at this point. Uh, much of his work is incredibly tedious, and as I've said, tedium and technicality are two aspects that will define his career. you know right until the end of government service because on the one hand while it is very exciting to read about this in real time a lot of it was drafting redrafting submitting drafts sending cables in the dead of night uh, you know and these were long very lengthy cables that went into endless reams of clause a as sub clause a.1 it went on for page after page and you know you can get lost if you are a biographer and you're reading this you can very easily get lost in how completely mind numbing it is because essentially these are the same things that are being cabled to london and coming back from london but with the addition of one word or the subtraction of one word so he's got to go through the whole thing and he's again. got to go through the whole thing and again. this is not microsoft word where changes are tracked no, and all of that no. he's got to read the full damn thing he's got to read the whole thing and this is he's got to then retype the whole thing right because that one word its presence or its absence is essentially changing language it's changing implication so this is a point that a can be seen with a lot of you can view it as a very boring period in his life or you can look at it as somebody who has moved on from the small scale to medium scale right this is the biggest he's come in his career so far he has no idea that he's actually going to go to the heights that he does go i mean i wouldn't even call it medium scale because it's so mind boggling to me it's a large scale in itself yeah it's a large scale in itself but you know when you look we know what it, comes later yeah. so so yeah. i mean in retrospect it is medium scale but it's it's also medium scale in terms of sheer hierarchy yeah. right because he's superintendent of the reforms office at this point and he actually has overall charge but his charge is so it's so technical and it's so heavily technical that to explain it in simple terms took some doing because you don't necessarily think of it i mean right now when i talk about the fact that he gave women the right to vote and he gave uneducated people the right to vote that he pressured governments to lower educational standards it's actually a very simplistic sort of extraction of what he did to sort of highlight his achievements but that came 
mired in so much legalese and so many days where he just a didn't sleep at all b he had to read the same thing until he you know he it was you feel like you're going mad because you're reading the same thing over and over again so yes this was a point of immense progress for india but if you were in vp's position it was also a really tedious task you know because you were sitting behind the scenes and you were going through reams and reams of paperwork and none of that is exciting and of course at this point in time vp doesn't have the responsibility as he would more than a decade later of actually dealing with all the princes at a personal level but you have a very amusing anecdote about how linlith go decides to throw a sports meet in yeah. 1938 <laughs> where he calls all the princes yeah. again i'll quote from your book quote The result was a spectacular failure. The royals were neither young nor particularly sporty. The ruler of Garoli, for instance, tried to relive his youth with a sprinting and extra long run up to bowl and suffered a heart attack in the process. No one wanted to discuss tiresome subjects like the abridgement of princely powers, grouping protocols and the consequences of democracy. The general mood was to finish off the week as fast as possible so one could resume the usual routine, including the annual new year's duck shoot at the nearby isanagar lake said to be the best duck shoot in bundelkhand <laughs> stop quote i apologize if i'm making your book sound really boring because actually is full of really entertaining stuff like this some of which i will also quote later but let's talk for a moment about i mean you could say in this episode we have been as guilty of ignoring vp's personal life as vp himself was Tell me a bit about that. Like, okay, so he had an arranged marriage with someone in his village called uh, Sushila, right. and that's all we know of her. And at the same time, what is sort of pertinent to mm. all of this is a gentleman called Kotiyath P. Anantan. Am I right, pronouncing right, it right? Kotiyath P. Anantan, right. who is rewind here the gentleman who gave him money for the ticket to Simla when he first came to Delhi after he, yeah. his pockets had been picked, and they became close friends later, and he became. very thick with both kotiyath p yep. anantan and uh, kotiyath's wife kanakam yep who would later become his wife indeed so <laughs> kindly take us through what all is going on in his sort of personal life here. so let's rewind it is 1914 kotiyath anantan turns out to be the guy who's helped him to get to simla kotiyath anantan also encounters vp later and in a professional capacity by later i mean a few months later right their friendship starts in 1914 which makes it that much easier i think when you are an outside spectator to sort of have his personal life imbued with a lot of uh, rather salacious cues should i say you know because you can make jokes about him marrying his mentor's wife and stuff uh, but what i see here is it, and she was only 5 years older than she him she was only 5 years older than him vp was not somebody who was very keen to get married he got married very reluctantly and under immense pressure from his mom and uh, most of us know that uh, story uh, when it comes to us as well but he succumbed to parental pressure he uh, went did the proper thing got an arranged marriage this woman's name was sushila and that is literally all that we know about her we know that she came from the same village we know that she came from quite a good family was from the same caste it was a marriage that did not work and uh, she is of course your great grandmother she as well she is my great grandmother she is i am descended from sushila and in fact uh, if sushila hadn't gone on to have two children it might have been like she never existed i don't know what happened during that marriage or why it imploded 
strangely and even more bizarrely neither does anyone else there is no evidence uh, of what happened that she left behind no letters or if she did they were destroyed we don't know she walked out or seemingly walked out again she because disappeared she disappeared she left behind two kids and two young kids like i said my grandfather was 9 his brother was 7 and you know she had those two kids it might have been like she didn't exist he allowed vp would allow no mention of her ever again his children asked repeatedly where their mother had gone and he never told them and they never stopped looking for they never stopped looking for their mother they never stopped trying to find her it impacted their lives for years as understandably it would what exactly transpired to actually de- destroy destroy their marriage i don't know nobody remembers her only mrs vp menon that is remembered is kanakam right so he met kotiya tanantan and uh, kanakam 14 and they become firm friends right kotiya is years older than vp and together both kanakam and kotiya represent the kind of people that vp is, is trying to be right so they are aspirational uh they live in circumstances of very comfortable wealth kotiyath likes his cigars kotiyath likes uh, his pegs of whiskey kotiyath is extremely cultured as far as vp is concerned kanakam is from a very very unconventional family one of her sisters was a fluent sanskrit scholar yet another you know obtained a license to fly um so she's from a really out family that obviously did not mind the daughters being out there uh, in quite a flamboyant way she has very decided informed opinions of her own she has a great sense of humor she cooks really great food um and there's becomes a house that is sort of a home away from home for vp um it's also a very parochial mallu to mallu connection which always works um he will always call kanaka mummy um, even after they even after they are married that is something that continued all their lives um and again is very easy to see why that can give rise to a lot of sort of scandalous gossip because here you have a fellow calling his wife mummy but in 35 when vp's first marriage implodes kanakam is there right she is actually moved in to vp's home with her daughter minakshi kotiyath has died by this point but here you have vp actually living with his mentor's wife her daughter and sushila the boys are away at school tongues are wagging about this very unconventional setup because he's essentially living now with two women and sushila disappears and sushila now disappears so you just have vp and kanakam left so tongues are wagging even more right so this is an aspect of vp's life he goes ahead and formalizes a wedding in 1941 uh you know two years later but for those two years he is essentially what we say today living in sin in 41 he is when he will formalize that marriage that is a marriage that will last until the end of their lives however convoluted the dynamic it was also a very quietly steadfast marriage uh it was a marriage that did not rely too much on spoken sentiment but on almost sort of implicit understanding of who vp was and where he was going my family's recollections of kanakam have always been of a woman who was very quiet but ensured that vp's work was never disturbed in any way you know if he brought work home for instance uh, she would insist that 
The house ran very smoothly around him, but he was not to be disturbed. Tea, coffee, food was sent in, he was not disturbed. So she essentially made him the center of life of of the household um, and essentially became the anchor that he was very obviously looking for. And I think that's one of the reasons why this was a marriage that worked. It was a marriage that was inevitably shrouded with a lot of scandal, a lot of which has persisted until today. In fact, you know, when Wavell was Viceroy, he noticed that VP would not always, he wouldn't bring Kanakam to official receptions and he wouldn't, he generally just never brought her into public professional life. She remained very much at home. And Wavell would ask VP, why are you doing that? Bring her next time. And VP is slightly embarrassed that Wavell's noticed this. He tries to cover that up, but he says, okay, fine, if you want me to bring her, I will. And he does bring her to an official reception and Wavell does the immense honor of actually introducing VP and Kanakam first to the guests of honor before proceeding to other equally much more important people in the room. Wavell was a kind man from all accounts. Wavell was a very kind man and he was no politician, but he was a very kind, just man. Uh, VP liked him very much. He felt he was incredibly unsuited to India's political climate and politics, but a very just, fair man. But yes, his personal life has not been easy to write about as well. Because you had to basically, I had to basically sit down and look at this man's life incredibly dispassionately. It's not always easy to talk about somebody who's related to you and and also dissect instances of emotional cruelty that they're capable of, cruelty slash stuntedness. Especially to his kids who Especially are, his you kids. know, one of them is your yeah, grandfather. Yeah, so it's not a subject that you can write about easily or approach easily but at the same time it was something that I felt needed to be done because you need to present a portrait of a human being. VP Menon was capable of immense professional greatness not so much in his private life and that goes towards contributing one comprehensive human being and I think both aspects were incredibly important to write about. I mean, the story of our history is a story of incredibly flawed men. Yeah. And there's a very nice uh, domestic story in your book where you talk about how, you know, he's at this lunch meeting and he's formulated the men and plan. And, yeah, and yeah. it has to be done in four it hours. The draft has to be, yeah. uh, you know, sent off. And he hasn't had breakfast and it's lunchtime, but yeah. there's no time for lunch. So he takes his cronies and quickly goes home where Kanakam is asks him, do you want to have lunch? And he says, no, no, I can't, no time. And then she sulks and says, okay, I won't have lunch either. And she goes off. Yeah, because this was also a point when VP was getting a lot of hate mail. Yeah, he Which was, also struck me. This is the 1940s. There is no Twitter. He is getting hate mail. He's getting hate mail. He's getting death threats. And Kanakam's taken a lot of this in a stride. But this fact, the fact that, you know, he's been held up at work and he's for the first time in years forgotten to phone her up and tell her he won't be home for lunch and if he will eat or not. Because he has to draft the plan because which will change to, India forever. Yeah, because he yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, but then she's pissed off, you know, because she thinks, why didn't you call me? And, you know, he's standing there and he's wondering, do I go to pacify her or do I write the plan that's going to change history? What do I do? He writes a plan. So, he writes the plan that changes history. Fabulous. Yeah, so let's get back from the personal life now to sort of um, historical narrative. And let's get into the 1940s. Right. This is where things are really heating up. Britain has gone to war and the Indian politicians are pissed off because Lenlith Go just unilaterally announced that India is at, uh, has joined the Second World War. And the Congress makes a series of blunders here. And what's also happening here, and it's also fascinating to see that unfold in the book, is that VP is getting closer and closer looks at key protagonists of our independence 
independents like Nehru and Patel and over time getting to know them a little better yeah. at the same time as Jinnah becomes a stranger to him yeah. again. And he's not entirely approving of everything that the Congress is doing. Tell me a little bit about this period. I think it's inevitable that he would, during the process that he was going through, uh, get a closer insight into the personalities of the men who were shaping India's politics at that point. And this, he was getting a close look at both sides of the divide, right? So he was getting a close look at the League, at uh, the Congress, as well as the princely states, right? So the late 1930s is also when he drafts the prototype of the instrument of accession that he and Sardar Patel are going to use a decade later. He is also seeing princes backing away from federation. He is now also watching the Congress threatening to resign its ministries. He doesn't approve of that idea at all. He feels that that's a stupid idea. He is n- never entirely approving of many of the things that people do on both sides of the divide, whether it's Nehru, whether it's Jinnah. For him, I suppose it's also easy for him to take that judgment because he's watching these men take make these decisions as a third party, right? So he's essentially watching huge egos coming to blows with each other and often dominating decisions that need to be taken in a cooler, more pragmatic way. And this is also especially, I guess, reflected in Jinnah and Nehru baiting each other all the time, which, which makes a did. sort of a rapprochement yeah. very difficult. It makes a rapprochement very difficult because essentially every olive branch that either party hands out is struck aside. And you are fast approaching a point of deadlock. Where do you go from here? Now, Pakistan is now a nascent sort of idea that's sort of floating around. It's not entirely been picked up 100% yet, even though Jinnah's gone ahead and made the Lahore resolution. VP still believes that a unified India can still be pulled off if people can just put aside their egos, if people can stop baiting each other. A lot of his decisions at this point are also, for me, they read almost as acts of political naivete because for someone who's been exposed to egos and exposed to differing personalities, you must have been able to see the writing on the wall a lot earlier than VP did, right? In 1941, he was still pushing for a unified India. He goes to Lindithko one more time and he says, we can still pull it together and make a unified federal India possible. Again, Lindithko doesn't listen to him. And these are points when he is seeing the flaws of the greatest men of Indian politics come more and more glaringly into focus. He is seeing Jinnah transform into the Jinnah of 1946-47, into a increasingly bitter, resentful, cynical man. He is seeing Nehru make statements that really Nehru shouldn't do, that aren't exactly politically wise. And he is to a large extent, really annoyed because he can see where this is going and yet he doesn't want to believe that it's going in that direction as yet. He does not want to believe it. Um, and I think the greatest example of that was uh, his transfer of power plan in 41. And we have another example of it as well when we come to 1945 and the Simla conference. Uh, and those are two key examples from the mid-1940s of uh, VP Menon believing staunchly that India need not head towards partition of Pakistan. For him, the interplaying of personalities was a key reason why India was greening towards the path that she was heading down. He never entirely, and for me, it was entirely subjective. I know today it's very easy to categorize him as Sardar Patel's right-hand man or as being in Patel's camp. 
But in the late 1930s, early 1940s, he hadn't yet encountered Siddhar Patel. He hardly knew Patel. He hardly knew Patel, right? So these were independent assessments that he'd made. These were subjective assessments that he made based on how these men were reacting to propositions for India's political future. They were assessments of human beings. They were assessments of how men could easily wreck or capsize a political boat if they weren't careful. And this is, I think, something that comes across very strongly in the interviews that he did with Hodgson, because there he's actually talking about interacting with these political legends as men. Uh, he's essentially deconstructing them as personalities with flaws, uh, which often blinded them to the greater good of the country. Uh, he never agreed with the fact that the Congress resigned uh, from the ministries in 39. And that was something that he would hold right to the end of his government career. In fact, uh, it is a statement that he makes obliquely in transfer of power as well. He is far more colorful about it in his interviews. But it was something he kept his mouth shut about until he absolutely could give free rein to his tongue. It was important for me to see that he didn't actually hold these people in awe. He was able to see them as men capable of small behavior, uh, insular behavior. And he could rage about this. You know, in fact, when he, when Linlith Koh sent three emissaries to the princely states in 37, he would get really annoyed with that because he said that's the first step towards actually making federation fall through. You are essentially sending these men who are Englishmen to princely states to tell them, look, essentially your days are numbered here. We are going to be leaving and this is going to be your future. He didn't agree with that at all. Uh, he didn't feel like it should have been done. Later on, when the Cripps mission failed in 42, Stafford Cripps actually meets VP and says, Mr. Menon, look, the greatest service you could do for this country is you could make a coalition happen between the Congress and the League. That might be the only way forward here. And those become words that actually push him towards setting up the Simla Conference. And the letter for that conference actually exists still in the National Archives. And it is, to me, yet another example of how VP was learning to navigate different personalities. It is a very long, very elaborate letter, lays out the blueprint for the Simla Conference. In it, he does not take any credit for putting across this idea. He basically says, the Viceroy should get political stakeholders around a common table, have them in the same room, talk about it, and then push forward from there. He is just to be there in a supervisory capacity. The actual discussion is to be done between those who are actively interested in India's political future. But what is clever about this letter is that he's actually giving Wavell, who is sitting Viceroy at that point, the authority to go ahead with this. He was putting it across as if it should be Wavell's idea. It should be Wavell who goes out there and gets this done. At no point does he say, I feel that this should be done. At no point does he push it. In his own official narrative, in fact, he has not taken credit for this at all. It is uh, merely written as, we will put, like, arrange the Simla conference. It's only when you actually read that letter that you realize that it was not Wavell, it was actually VP Menon who pushed for the Simla conference because at that point he was still fervently hoping that both parties could actually put aside their differences and sit down and actually look at the future of India, right? And at this point, there were several other factors that were going on behind the scenes. So you had people like Robert Mudi, who was within the Home Department at that point. He was Home Member, and he was also very pro-Pakistan. 
and he was somebody VP suspected of basically poisoning Jinnah's ear, letting him know that the only way out and the only way forward for the Muslim League to actually start catering to Muslim interests was to push for Pakistan. And this is something that Jinnah tells Durga Das, who is, you know, working with the Hindustan Times at that point uh, at the Simla conference. And he tells Durga Das, he says, why do I need to sit here when Pakistan is being handed to me on a platter? Why do I need to listen to these people? Um, and he goes ahead and basically puts forward a lot of unreasonable proposals to Wavell and says that basically all Muslim interests will be held by the League, represented by the League. And that's not something Wavell can agree with. Uh, and it's one of the things that capsizes the similar conference. Yet another thing that capsizes further political interest is later when the cabinet mission has departed, Right In 1946, Jawaharlal Nehru gives a press conference on the 10th of July in which he says that we are not going to support grouping at all. You know, no one here is going to support grouping. So obviously that's going to fall through. And VP is livid because he says, you know, why did Nehru have to go and make that kind of a statement? Obviously now Jinnah is going to pull out and this is going to come to nothing. And Jinnah is forced to pull out because if Nehru is condemning this, there's no way the league can say yes. So essentially speaking, VP is at this point sitting now very much at the front lines. His position has subtly changed because in 43, Harry Hodgson leaves. And Harry Hodgson leaves behind a very strong letter of recommendation saying, look, there is no one better qualified to take up the position of reforms commissioner than VP Menon. And he's the first non-Englishman to... He's the first non-Englishman to be reforms commissioner without having sat for the ICS exams. So he has now reached pinnacles of his career that he didn't think were possible. So from 43 onwards, from 43, 44, 45, he is. And as reforms commissioner, he is basically pushing for some kind of agreement that can possibly happen before it's too late. It's only in 46, 45, 46 that he begins to see that it's not possible. From 46, he is absolutely convinced that partition is inevitable. We'll have any plan that we put forward now. We'll have to cater to partition and Pakistan. There is no way we can't. And a large part of that he ascribes to Nehru's press conference of July 1946. In fact, all of that, all these years, the first half of the 40s are beautifully detailed in your book and a must read. Well, you know, before I go on to the sort of larger questions I want to ask, including about, I'm sure what our listeners are waiting for, the Patel versus Nehru relationship and <laughs> how we look at history today. Mm. But before I get to those larger questions, I also want to, you know, briefly cover the sort of Two other big moments in VP's career and one is of course when uh, Mountbatten comes yeah. and uh, you know VP's been a very important part of the administration till now he's a reforms commissioner and all of that but Mountbatten has just come with his own guys some of them incompetent and in VP's words when he describes the early part of uh, Mountbatten's tenure in India quote I was just there to do donkey's work if they needed a paper drafted or if they had no time to do something, then it was understood that VP would do it. But if they had to take decisions, then they would hold meetings without me and take those decisions themselves. It was a most frustrating situation. Stop quote. And part of it could be ingrained racism and, you know, what yeah. the natives know sure. and all of that rubbish. But in no time at all, he is absolutely crucial to Mountbatten, the one person that Mountbatten relies upon. Tell me a little bit about how this shift happened and why it happened. What did VP bring to the table? This was actually a very, sort of very complex period in VP's professional life because backtracking to about the autumn of 1946, 
this was a prof- like it was a milestone for VP because it is the autumn of 1946 that he encounters Sardar Patel for the first time, and that is something that is going to have a huge impact on his career going forward. Sardar Patel has obviously heard of VP Menon, never met him. but in no time they forge a relationship that is hugely that is very professional but also hugely personal and it is in the in december of 46 that vp actually submits yet another transfer of power plan this time it is based on transfer of power and dominion status to two central governments it is catering for pakistan and partition uh, in the most viable way possible that plan has sadar patel's approval it is submitted to wavel it is then sent to whitehall again it is brushed aside but it is one of the plans that mountbatten will look at as part of his briefs for going out to india mountbatten comes with a reputation that precedes him he is um, incredibly flashy he loves the limelight he is somebody who believes that he can he's basically sent there as somebody who can do this single handedly he comes with a hand core group of english officials whom he feels can basically steer country the country towards transfer of power and they can basically you know see to this in a bloodless way and get get out of there as soon as possible and as yet it might be remembered that the transfer of power date is still 1948 it's not come up to 1947 as yet so mountbatten basically comes out and vp is not consulted about any of the Mountbatten meets with various political stakeholders, puts together what is now known as Plan Balkan, which was essentially transferring power on a completely voluntary basis. It was essentially leaving uh, the accession to a dominion of India on a voluntary basis, and it was leaving the door open for princely states to do as they pleased. So you could have five hundred. So you could have five hundred. Yeah, you up. could have five hundred independent countries coming up within the country. Uh, this was the plan that was sent ahead to Whitehall. This was the plan that VP says was never shown to him, and it was a plan that VP knew was being made. He was just never shown the final draft, and that is one of the last straws for VP. He threatens to resign. Edwina Mountbatten steps in at this point, and she calls him up and she says, "Are you okay? What's wrong?" And he says, "Madam, you've got a sitting reforms commissioner and a constitutional adviser also in me." and i'm not being allowed to do my job so it's it might be best if i just step down so she says you know what just relax i'll speak to dicky which is mountbatten's pet name and she does speak to dicky and you know he's called up vp's then called up to simla in the may of 1947 and it's actually may of 1947 that both the transfer of power movement gets a huge impetus with his presence because it is now that he actually puts forward his own plan for the transfer of power that he's been putting forward so unsuccessfully for the last few years he now puts across what will become the menin plan and that is again catering to transfer of power and dominion status it's dealing with the partition of bengal and punjab as well and it is the plan that has the approval of sardar and he didn't outrightly tell mountbatten that he's got the approval of sardar but he basically said that he knew the congress would carry it through mountbatten here says okay look nehru is coming up with krishna menon why don't you go and tell him about this plan see what he has to say and vp goes to nehru and this is a point where things become incredibly embarrassing for vp because he knows that a plan has gone ahead to whitehall he's been instructed by mountbatten not to let nehru know about plan balkan 
So he goes to Nehru, he basically outlines the Menon plan. Nehru accepts the Menon plan and VP knew he would accept it because if Sardar had accepted it, there was an excellent chance that Nehru would accept it as well, which Nehru did. The only thing was Nehru didn't know the plan Balkan had gone ahead. Plan Balkan came back, you know, a couple of days later. It had some changes to it. The quality and quantity of those changes remained disputed as to what extent they were modified. But the revised plan was shown to Nehru by Mountbatten because Mountbatten had a hunch that Nehru might not like it. Nehru did not like it. In fact, Nehru freaked out about it. And Nehru was in an understandably in a complete rage because his reforms commissioner and constitutional advisor had given him another plan altogether. This was some other plan that was threatening to basically balkanize India. And he didn't know what the hell was going on. So he called VP the next morning and basically lost his temper at VP and on, on a grand scale. And VP is basically standing there, having to listen to Nehru rage at him. He doesn't know that Plan Balkan has been shown to Nehru. So he's having to defend something that he knows is untrue. And he knew everything that he was saying would sound untrue. And on his tapes to Harry Hodgson, he says that and his voice is very resigned when he says it. He says, you know, I don't blame Panditji. You know, there he was uh, understandably upset with the reforms commissioner who was seeming to not know about any plan that had gone ahead. How could his reforms commissioner not know? How is that even possible? So obviously it looked like I was telling lies when I wasn't, right? So, I mean, this was a point when for VP, it started the downturn of his relationship with Nehru. Nehru would never fully 100% trust VP after that. And I think for many reasons, VP didn't really blame Nehru for that particular episode alone because it was understandable for Jawaharlal Nehru to be completely infuriated by the fact that here were two different plans being shown to him and a reforms commissioner who was pretending, it seemed to Nehru, that he didn't know anything about it. And it was a point where admittedly VP had submitted what became the Menon plan, but it also was a point where his relationship with Nehru took a straight nose dive. So, and you know, while reading the book, one very interesting thing struck me that for his entire career, yeah, VP is working with the British Empire. Right. He's very much part of the British Empire. And at certain points in time, mm -hmm. all of these politicians who are uh, our founders and who will be his colleagues later on in time, Nehru, Patel and right. so on, are almost adversaries in, in different contexts, depending on how you look at it. And then he switches from sort of working with the empire, which is the force that they're fighting, mm. to actually working with them. Yeah. And it happens really smoothly. Yeah. Like, of course, while he's reforms commissioner with Wavell and later with uh, Mountbatten, he also becomes close to Sadar Patel, right. and uh, you know, because he admires his practicality and so on and all of that is happening. And here the double role almost becomes formalized when Patel asks him to join the States Department. Right, right. In, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, what that was like, because... This is now sort of a crazy challenge. In fact, I'll, uh, you know, the challenge, of course, is to bring all the princes into the union. <laughs> yeah. And you have so many colorful um, things to say about this period that I don't even know which bits to quote. But I'll begin with this quote. The princes of India were a fascinating study in eccentricity. They were hedonistic, imperious and flamboyant. Some ruled state size of Germany. Others lauded it over tiny specks the size of pocket handkerchiefs. The last decade of the Raj was 
halcyon in their memories nearly every ruler remembers armies of retainers solid gold plates at dinner chakkas of polo jewels by kartier and coffers overflowing with diamonds rubies emeralds and gold they had been for the most part willing vassals of the british stock court and then of course you go on to give details about how sort of the british gave them honorifics and some were called highness and you know the nizam of hyderabad was called his exalted highness to elevate him above the mere highnesses and they had different kinds of gun salutes which became an ego issue i particularly like some of them like maharaja vibhuti narayan singh of banaras were deeply religious when he visited the nawab of rampur he insisted that the first object that met his gaze in the morning should be a cow this put the nawab whose guest apartment were on the first floor in a quandary the matter was resolved by borrowing a crane from a nearby sugar factory every morning <laughs> i have to laugh every morning an astonished cow was hoisted up to the windows of the maharaja's suite there to dangle <laughs> until his highness chose to wake up and settle his royal gaze upon the hapless cow stop coat <laughs> and the, the book is full of such crazy stuff which is why it's also in parts uh, uh, and uh, such an entertaining read I mean the mind boggles like if this task was to come in front of me that you have to talk to 585 princely <laughs> states and get them all yeah. to sign yeah uh I would just freeze what is patel and vp's approach to this and and why is vp so important to patel for this So like I said patel has met vp during the autumn of 46 he has heard of vp's reputation it doesn't take long for vp to become invaluable to patel they would essentially start the day essentially together vp would go over to patel's residence on aurangzeb road and he would first brief patel in the mornings and this is long before he was in the states ministry this is in 46 itself uh they would meet again in the evenings there would be a lot of phone calls in between so it was an almost um, obsessively close professional uh, relationship that they shared uh, right from the get go By forty-seven, when VP has submitted the Menon plan, there are other machinations also in play. So Sadar Patel has been talking to the princes much before forty-seven. You know, uh, the task of talking to the princes has not been something that the government of India actually ever stopped doing. Uh, the Chamber of Princes has been incredibly influential in trying to put across its views to where they wanted their royal houses to be, and these are houses that trace their lineage back to Vedic eras, to the sun and the moon, you know, to various outlandish ideas, to you know, in order to legitimize their sovereignty. But Patel has been deploying a method of. personal diplomacy also there have been lunches with various princes there have been you know dinner receptions ways in which he could essentially woo them out of uh, official settings gopala swami ayengar was incredibly influential there as well in the beginning of 47 for instance when the states negotiating committee which was the first step towards an official states ministry the negotiating committee actually sat down between february and march before clement atlee's declaration that mountbatten would be coming out and india would be independent and the states negotiating committee's job was to sit down with major royal houses and essentially start discussing the way forward once paramountcy lapsed now sardar patel actually in the transcripts of those are available in the gopalaswami ayengar papers in teen murti and it was it's a fascinating read because essentially speaking these are acrimonious discussions right some of them uh, like there was a dinner on 31st of january 1947 at bikaner house and that was a fairly cordial dinner you know nehru was there patel nayangar major 
Princess Bikaner Biroda, uh, C.P. Ramasamy Iyer from Travancore. And it was a fairly cordial dinner. Princess essentially had a few concerns about where the future was heading. Jawaharlal Nehru was very clear when he said, look, we want to talk to you. We want to essentially listen to what you have to say and then take the future forward as it unfolds. The minutes of the negotiating committee read very differently, right? So you have the principal proponents like Hamidullah Khan, who was the Nawab of Bhopal and the sitting chancellor of the Chamber of Princes. Hamidullah Khan was no fan of uh, the lapse of Paramount Singh. Um, and he was even less a fan of an idea for a state's ministry. And he actually was trying to prevent a lot of his brethren from joining an independent union of India. He felt that they should basically stand independently. Sardar Patel actually says something that I found quite significant. He says, to the extent to which you hand over your powers, there will be no question of taking over your powers. Which is basically saying, if you don't hand over your powers, we'll take it away. So deal with it. Essentially, essentially, right? So he's basically made his intentions very clear. So he's deploying set tactic, personal charm, as well as implicit threats. The carrots and the sticks. The carrot and the sticks. You come with us, you'll get your privy purses, we'll look after you. Yeah. But you don't come with us. Listen, we are moving in any way and you may end up with nothing. Absolutely. So this is the precedent that's already set in motion, right? And technically, what are the choices open under law to the princes now? Technically, they can opt for independence or India or Pakistan? Yeah, that's basically it. So these are the choices open to them. These are the choices but, open. But um, what the India's stand really is that, listen, you better come with us. Otherwise, you know, I mean, your initial thing is that you won't be able to survive on your own. So why don't you come with us? But if you don't come with us, you know, it's going to happen anyway. There are several layers here as well, you know, because the British did have independent treaties with these princely states as well. Right. So when you were basically moving towards partition and you were moving towards a set transfer of power, you basically had a lot of councils, a lot of committees that were set up to oversee this. One of that, one of them was expert committee number nine on foreign relations, which the sole job of which was to de- deconstruct where uh, British legal treaties with these princely states stood, how many of these clauses would carry over after independence, right? So that was one aspect that was continuing. VP Menon's overall aspect, uh, overall task with the Ministry of States was the mandate was very different. The mandate was a driving force to basically present independent India as a stable, cohesive unit, right? So there were states that were going to give trouble, which was strategically, for instance, on the borders with Pakistan. There were states that were minerally rich, but also incredibly strategically important as well, like Hyderabad. There was Kashmir. There were 500 odd of these states scattered across the country. The driving force for VP would be to not let the country dissolve into complete chaos after transfer of power had been affected and partition had been carried out because you could actually send international perception either way, right? He didn't want, yeah, and this is something that he alludes to quite frequently. If you read the story of the integration of the states, it's a sentence that keeps coming back in every other chapter that they did not want India to be portrayed as anything else other than a stable solid unit of governance. And for those reasons, integration was very important. Anyway, that was much later in the future. In June 1947, Sildar Patel basically calls VP and says, we're thinking of setting up a ministry of states. I'm going to be minister of states. I want you to be my deputy. And this is a shocker for VP because he's been working for years now. He wants a break. He wants to be transferred to governor of a province where he can earn a bit more money and relax a little bit. 
But here is Sardar insisting that, look, I want you, I don't want anyone else. And by this point, they are more friends than they are professional allies. And VP at this point knows the procedures, knows how to draft law, knows all the princes. Yes. And knows the real politic of how to talk to whom and to get things done and to get people at a table together to agree on stuff. Absolutely. So which he's is, key. He's key, which is what Sardar Patel sees. What VP sees, which I found rather touching, was the fact that the first thing he thought about, apart from being really exhausted, was the fact that this would be the first time that he would actually be working with Sardar Patel. He had been Sardar Patel's sort of key man, but this would actually see them working together. And he kept thinking, what if this impaired their friendship, right? And I found that a really refreshingly honest sort of think about at this juncture, right? You're being handed a position of immense and key power. And that's literally the first thing that comes to your mind. What if it affects our friendship down the line, right? What if we can't work together? What if we are people who have very different ways of functioning and we don't really get along? And Sardar Patel essentially says, forget all that, just come on board, we'll make it work. And so that happens in June, but he can't takeovers yet because he's still constitutional advisor. He has to see those duties through first. So like I said, he is working currently with three other men, uh, Sir George Spence, uh, KVK Sundaram and SVR Cook to basically put together the Indian Independence Bill, which will become the Indian Independence Act. And that is basically, it's legalizing partition. It's legalizing the formation of Pakistan. It is essentially the document, though it's only about maybe 20 clauses in total, and it's a fairly tidy little document. It is essentially the document that's going to be central to transfer of power. And like I said earlier, these were four men, and they were basically given the task of dismantling British rule uh, in a matter of weeks. Right? So he had to first finish this task. In July 1947, he basically, he joins the Ministry of States as secretary. He takes over on the 5th of July. And his brain has to automatically shift gears because now you're thinking not just of transfer of power, but you're also thinking of accession, right? This accession is a subject that's, like I said, been talked about for a while now. The procedure that Sardar Patel has set in motion has been basically to try and get as many princes on board the Constituent Assembly as he can, right? So by the 28th of April, a lot of princely houses have seen the light and they have joined the Constituent Assembly. They're taken care of. There are states that are promising to be troublesome. Travancore, Hyderabad, Junagadh. These are states that aren't willing to be taken down so easily. So there now begins a sort of mental shift in gears because now VP has to see to it that before 15th of August, which is less than one month left, he has to basically see to it that he can get as many more, apart from Travancore, Hyderabad, Junagar, on board with accession and with signing the instrument of accession as he can before the 15th of August. After that, it's anybody's guess where anything will go. Here again, I find... The role of personalities comes and the role of power play also becomes immensely central to this narrative because the way that VP also utilized power and utilized the usage of power was incredibly fascinating. So, for instance, as far as Mountbatten was concerned, both VP and Patel knew that any idea that was given to Mountbatten had to be presented in such a way that Mountbatten thought that it was his idea. So basically, on the 25th of July, when the last Chamber of Princes is held and Mountbatten addresses these guys, it is essentially Mountbatten being sent by VP and to talk to the princes, tell them that their days are numbered and it might be best. Mountbatten's come there thinking that it's basically his idea and he's basically 
doing this and it is one of his last great acts as viceroy if he can convince these princes to that's one aspect another really wonderful little anecdote that i had is there is this ball that's given by mount batten on the 28th of july right and all the princes are present and those that are hesitant to exceed are taken by mount batten's adc's first to mount batten and then they are conducted across the room to sardar patel by vp menon and it is almost naked display of the flow chart of power how power is being distributed and actually who in the room holds power right and that is something that vp is quite smug about right if you read the story of the integration of the states also it's quite a smug little sentence where he says that nobody missed how the flow of power was actually being played out we basically wanted them to see that and they did and the raja of sarela was present and he said nobody missed it nobody who was there could have failed to notice that these are the men who are in power and apart from the viceroy the actual men in the government of india who hold power sardar patel and vp menon and and you know your book obviously has a lot of fascinating detail on how they converted the princes and chapters on junagadh yeah. hyderabad and kashmir which i've also dealt with in an excellent episode which will be linked from the show notes in my episode on kashmir with srinath raghavan a thought that kind of struck me as i was reading this mm-hmm. was that on the one hand vp menon shifted from working for the british empire to working for those who were his adversaries yeah. but on the other hand it almost seemed as if he shifted shifted from one empire to another and from being freedom fighters what people like patel nehru and so on were now doing was putting together an empire of their own because these were all sort of princely states and by hook or by crook they were sort of uh, being united it is not as if the will of the people were was being asserted Absolutely. anywhere Absolutely. you were preying on the egos and the weaknesses yeah. of individual princes and kings and one thing that you have pointed out in your book that patel and menon were very specific about is that whatever promises we make to these people whatever agreements mm. we make for why they agree to join the union we must honor them you even point out arguments that patel had to that effect with nehru who didn't really care so much about it absolutely and in the end india did betray them all didn't it decades later yes india did what i really want to point out is that at this point after independence actually takes place on the 15th of august we see a shift from accession to integration and those are two very different processes that vp is involved with now it's no longer about whether or not you get a princess to sign the dotted line but it just becomes nakedly about they have to sign on the dotted line and now is when you actually get to see how he uses sardar patel's own tactics these he's seen sardar patel deploy a mix of personal as well as hard ruthlessness whenever he whenever it was required these are the same tactics that vp will use later on as well in fact the process of actual integration starts with odisha and chatisgarh and you point out interestingly how VP's tactical plan is he'll go to Orissa first himself, yeah. and if he fails, Sardar Patel will come right, right. Uh, because that's his whole good cop bad cop kind of tactic. Yeah. And, and Sardar Patel says, "No, no, let's go together," yeah. and they somehow make it work. They somehow do make it work, and and you know you see Sardar Patel taking a definite backseat and letting VP do the work, right? Because they have to go to Nagpur the next day, and they have a limited amount of time in which they can get a number of princes in that room to 
be okay with the fact that this is good that a merger is going to happen and sadar patel also uh, having health issues he He's has literally two issues. heart attacks during this yeah, time one he, that kind of absolutely. incapacitates him and the other which eventually absolutely in fact when vp was basically carrying this out sadar patel was sitting on a train and basically waiting for vp to finish up and join him on board the train so essentially these machinations were done by vp right so he basically met these princes and they were princes that had bickered among each other for the longest period of time and he actually had to single out one particular ruler the, uh, the raja maharaja dhankanal and basically tell him look and dhankanal was not a popular ruler he had been thrown out of his own state twice and he hadn't been yet reinstated and vp tells him look we'll give you special privileges in return for that what you have to go and do is unite your brother rulers tell them to sign on the dotted line and be okay with this uh, if you can do that we'll make this work for you so it was a sort of i'll scratch your back if you scratch mine right and it worked but you see the primary motivation for the integration over san chatisgarh was hyderabad and the trouble that was brewing in hyderabad so we vp had heard that the nizam spies were essentially wanting to abduct the boy king of bastar uh, which was incredibly mineral rich but also adjacent between hyderabad and odisha and chatisgarh and if that happened then trouble that was simmering in hyderabad would spill over into odisha and chatisgarh so basically that becomes a sort of driving factor for him to go to odisha first before they go anywhere else that is why odisha and chatisgarh is chosen so essentially speaking a lot of what is driving the integration process is a desire to stitch together the country into one cohesive fabric and do it as strategically as possible some of the stuff that i've had to actually leave leave out in my book because otherwise i can't talk about 565 states but what i noticed while i was writing this book was it was driven by that strategy so implicitly that sardar patel for instance didn't want to at that point look at states like tripura or kuch bihar these were smaller states while the threat of pakistan was certainly imminent particularly from the east sardar patel essentially felt that if these were states where it could be put off until it absolutely had to be done let it simmer for a while we have to deal with states that constitute the core of the country first and stitch together as much as we can first before dealing with smaller possibly less significant states and for much of it as i've said sardar patel was not doing so well health wise much of the leg work in fact all of the leg work was done by vp and we talk about kashmir hyderabad and junagarh because they're the easiest to talk about they're the most controversial to talk about and they're very richly told uh, histories as well but essentially speaking for me what was fascinating was you had to deal with 500 odd rulers you had to get 500 different houses on board by hook or by crook as you said you had to deploy a mixture of charm ruthlessness plain threatening you know to get them to sign on the dotted line there were people who refused to see the light the maharaja of indore for instance just refused to sign you know a delegation of princes went to meet him to tell him look you have to sign this there is no way out of this and he refuses to listen to them they're sitting in the drawing room in his home and he comes out of an antechamber facing the drawing room and he looks at them and basically goes up the stairs in silence and he's basically written several letters to vp and patel demanding to know what pakistan's terms for accessions are accession is can you look at those and patel and vp refused to cube this and several days later he right before the transfer of power takes place vp gets a manila envelope in which Holkar has essentially signed 
instrument work session and sent it just with no covering letter nothing it's just been sent ahead and you said vp was damn confused for a few yeah. hours he didn't know he didn't know, he, he didn't know who this said who this was where this had come from he didn't know random letters random letters <laughs> yeah no it is also very interesting and i won't dwell upon it i'll just ask listeners to go and buy the book and read about it but you know little uh, tactical details of how individuals the princes were brought into sway for example manipur Yeah. Where the king of Manipur fell in love with this young actress, actress yeah. but she spurned him, so he had her abducted <laughs> and kept in the palace overnight. Yeah. And the next day, she marches to him, obviously angry that she's just been raped, and demands that he marry her. Yeah. At which point, the Maharani gets to hear of it and has hysterics uh, herself. And has hysterics, <laughs> and this becomes a public scandal, which suits VP and Sardar Patel very well because then they use it as leverage to. make the dude sign and yeah. you know so all these other local factors Absolutely. what is the timing that you pick and all of that coming into play i'm you know what is also i mean we, we are recording this on um, feb 17 mm. and obviously 3 4 days ago there was this big controversy that broke about uh, patel and nehru yeah. and did nehru sort of uh, <laughs> include patel in his first cabinet or not and uh, you know so before we get to that specific sort of um, this thing tell me a little bit about what was the relationship between patel and nehru that vp saw yeah and was vp telling of it colored by his obvious fondness for patel for example you know in um, you write in the book going all the way back to 1936 mm. uh, you write quote jawaharlal's public persona was engaging articulate charming and sophisticated but patel was not alone in deploring jawaharlal's volatile personality he was too radical too emotional too impulsive for the older man's liking patel tried his best to see to it that raja ji to his mind an older more seasoned and far less impulsive candidate was made president of the congress in 1936 but gandhi did not hesitate jawaharlal was his choice and it was jawaharlal who became president of the congress top court and in 1937 jawaharlal insisted that he should stay in the post mm. uh, while it had been shifting every year basically and uh, you write quote the idea that jawaharlal could be so nakedly ambitious shocked the austere sardar if this continued it could have some terrible repercussions for the congress and stop quote and a lot of this is also playing out in the 40s where it is in fact jawaharlal's impulsiveness and you know speak, almost you know speaking without thinking of the larger yeah. consequences that drives that deepens that wedge between him mm. and jinnah and the thing is what i am sort of perturbed by is how we look at this relationship today yeah. on the one hand it is clear to me that nehru and um, patel who was 14 years older than him were very different people with right. different styles and they had huge differences with each other and at different points in time and different contexts i find myself taking one side or the other absolutely at the same time it is also clear that they worked incredibly well together mm. that a lot of how independent india was shaped despite patel's early death at the end of 1950 was because these two men teamed up and they worked well together and yet there seems to me to be a tendency to take a hardened position on this today because the dispensation and power today is trying to claim patel as one yeah. of their own and they have always demonized nehru Uh, despite yeah. uh, sharing uh, nehru's uh, centralizing impulses we are in a situation today where certainly on social media it's uh, 
Patel good, Nehru bad, or the other way around, and you cannot make yeah. any other argument. Yeah. And you face the brunt of this recently <laughs> when uh, you mentioned in your book how VP had related a story about Patel being kept out of his uh, Nehru's first cabinet, yeah. and then VP got word through to Mountbatten that this won't do, and Mountbatten had a quiet word with uh, Jawaharlal, and Patel was put back in. Yeah. And none of this would have been documented. Yeah. It's all people talking to each other, Absolutely. so to say. Absolutely. But VP talks about it in the oral. history he has left behind yes. and mountbatten later on when hodson gets in touch with him says yeah i remember something like yeah. that and the evidence against this is supposedly the letter which nehru wrote to patel telling him on you the are the giant the of third, my cabinet yeah. and blah 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 and the thing is both of these could be true or you know there could be a bit of truth to both of these and we don't really know and it's all gray but somehow it almost seems as if we have to take a hard stand against it and as a recipient of a fair amount of trolling in the last few days yourself what do you feel about it i think it's uh, frankly speaking i think it's a shame because honestly speaking it's very easy today given the political times to remember that actually nehru and patel were members of the same party at one point right they in fact at all points Yes they had disagreements and who doesn't when you're actually working together and you're working under moments of immense pressure you're working under situations that none of us can understand right because none of us are forging our country that are unique they are moments in time that demand things of you that you did not expect are you liable to have disagreements under that kind of pressure of course you are as you said nehru and patel were very different men they had very different perspectives of how india should move forward would that also have given rise to disagreement yes it would have and yet as you say and i agree both of them worked very well together i think one personality was necessary to sort of anchor the other and that works across the board you can't have two volatile personalities in power otherwise there will be a certain implosion patel was pragmatic nehru was not so pragmatic is that a bad thing to admit i don't think so i think and this is a point that i keep trying to make with my research human nature is all shades of gray a lot of the foibles of human nature contribute towards making history without those foibles there would be no history Am I refuting any of the evidence that's been presented? No, I'm not. Yes, those letters exist of the first and the third of August, nineteen forty-seven. But you can interpret history differently. Right? They could have been written even after the conversations They happened. They could have for been example. written. I, com- you know, VP Menon was somebody. We have to remember this was nineteen forty-seven, right? VP Menon was somebody who was operating also under immense stress. He was also equally somebody who was very much trusted by all stakeholders. The British. the uh, the league as well as the congress he had informants in the media he had informants in politics he was trusted for the kind of information that he could pick up from his contacts and relay which was put- potentially game changing for politics as it stood at that point and politics at that point was incredibly fluid politics at any point is fluid back channel talks take place all the time in diplomacy and politics back channel talks are very rarely documented neatly today we have archival evidence is the only way in which we can actually constructively reconstruct our past we have no other way of doing it but in doing so i think we shouldn't forget the fact that these were events happening in real time none of which was cleanly documented if it was there would be no uh, politics involved there would be no history either right because it would just be very easy to construct one single linear narrative a lot of the reasons why history remains subjective is because it has a lot of gray areas most of which are contributed to by human nature um i also feel like 
it's easy today to say that oh vp benen was sardar patel's right hand man so you know by the 1960s he had a lot of antipathy towards nehru it's very easy to say that and dismiss it i think that it's wrong to do that because uh there are others also on record uh, i have quoted aingar whose oral history is left at teen murti quoting uh, several incidents in which nehru was capable of immense pettiness for instance when sardar patel died aingar was home secretary at that point and he goes to nehru and says can i be part of the flight that's going to bombay and nehru says uh, no there's no room for you in fact nehru barred vp from attending sardar patel's yes, funeral yes, and vp and went is, anyway of course that is, but that that's staggeringly petty that's staggeringly petty it's also an incident that was recorded you know in an in a separate interview i did with sv raju who told me about this incident uh, also but you know what it's not a shame to admit that the greatest leaders that india had were also capable of human pettiness and human vice i think as soon as you forget that and as soon as you take a hard stance on one was good versus one was bad and you can't say anything against any either party i think that's something that needs to be put aside otherwise it becomes a problem in writing history it becomes a problem in studying history as well you can comprehensively change history by taking a hardened stand on any of this you know just because vp menon did not leave behind any documents as to this just because there are no documents that today attest to this does not mean that it did not happen very rarely is politics so neatly documented do we ignore oral histories so much i think we do i think that's something that needs to be looked at more closely we tend to rely heavily on letters on correspondence diaries we tend to not take into account oral history i like oral history simply because when a person is recounting a memory a person is then talking about it completely free of any you know constraints that might be holding him back for they're instance, not crafting a sentence and all no, of that not, they're just talking no they're not these are people who've left government service right they've got nothing to prove and nothing to lose and nothing to gain equally right so their memories will be that much more unadulterated by constraint right they were speaking freely it's all right to admit that uh, nehru had pettiness and spite it's equally all right to talk about the foibles of any of the great political leaders we've had we need to start looking at oral history as an important primary source when we're writing history rather than dismissing it as mere hearsay or gossip or indeed dismissing it as rumors a country could be made or broken on the whim of a rumor in those days even in these days you hear the slightest rumor at the highest channels uh, action will be taken based on the veracity of those rumors and the veracity of the person who's bringing those so called rumors to you uh, so information in real time played a key role in politics and still does in politics and diplomacy i think we shouldn't forget that oral history as well as real time information are both key factors in constructing a history of our past and one of the interesting things to remember is that in all the histories i have read of the period and indeed in your book and the episode i did on kashmir with srinath raghavan yeah. one thing that comes through is that much as a hindu right today is mm. trying to re- you know co-opt uh, patel into yeah. their pantheon which is uh, funny because he banned the rss yeah. <laughs> the thing is on the issue of kashmir patel was a one guy who was actually happy to do a plebiscite there yeah. who was happy to consider the practical option of let the muslim majority parts Absolutely. including the valley of kashmir go to pakistan Absolutely. all of those were on the table for him yeah. it was actually nehru who put his foot down and who prevented uh, sort of that from happening which your book talks about which sinatha spoken about which Absolutely. is there in the 
history is it's there in the histories as well you know there's so much that is there in history that has been recorded uh, the controversy over the date of the signing of the instrument of accession in kashmir which is also a subject i've talked about in the book i have also talked about vp's own stand of what should have happened in kashmir where he differed very greatly from uh, what actually happened exactly. right and but he, he's a man uh, who took the flight went to hari singh got the you know coaxed yeah. rather the signature out of him flew back and then india could send in the absolutely and yet his stand was we didn't give them a plebiscite and we should have yeah. and that's one area in which i think i have great regrets because i feel that we owed them a plebiscite we didn't give that to them and that i think is raw honesty which should be commended honestly speaking you yeah know? and i agree with him on that and also i can't help repeating that it does seem to me that you know we quickly cobbled together an empire sort of reassembled the empire of yeah. the british empire and made a lot of false promises along the way mm. including to kashmir and including to various other princely states that is something and, also that vp and patel have been accused of uh, that they betrayed the princes they took their legitimacy they took away their sovereignty and they basically left them with nothing it you know from whatever i have read from patel's own letters which are on record uh, and he wrote several strong letters on the subject to nehru for them it was a question of they knew the fact they knew what they were doing they knew that essentially these were very proud men and by taking away taking away their kingdoms they were essentially stripping them of a lot of the tangibility to which they tied their legitimacy patel for one was incredibly aware of that which is why the issue of privy purses became so important later on in fact it became important from 1949 itself you know when nehru basically started looking at ways to slash the privy purse and patel gets really upset with this and he writes a very strong letter and he says look we've taken everything from these guys now to for us to renege on even the barest minimum of the promises that we've left it would be incredibly unfair and if we're thinking of doing that then i don't think that this is the way forward for an independent country that we are being dishonest here and it's important to remember that these were men who acted with a view to bringing the country together yes but also knew exactly what they were doing when they were interacting with these rulers they saw them also as humans and they knew that they were stripping them of their of whatever they had been associated with and nehru in this regard uh, you know going against the core tenet of gandhianism according to me was you know just thinking of the ends and not the means yeah. and you know to lie to someone and then to cheat them out of something yeah. is not how you Sort of and yet there was a, a very concerted movement brought about by Nehru to actually start with the slashing of the privy purses, and this was something that Patel got wind of, and Patel didn't like that at all. I think that speaks volumes about both Patel and VP that you actually don't merely treat royal houses as you know factors to be integrated, you know, yeah. mere, mere pockets people. of territory, yeah. but they are actually also real and they're making sacrifices. Yes, also, and this these are two men who have no love for the princes. I might add. right patel was no great fan of the princess neither was vp right but in fact vp had been uh, one of them had pointed a gun at him jodhpur jodhpur <laughs> had pointed a gun at him in fact jodhpur and vp went on to become great friends jodhpur offered him a yeah, parliamentary jodhpur seat jodhpur <laughs> offered him a parliamentary seat for the 52 elections vp said no but you know these were men who saw both the ends but never treated the means as simply the means the means were also humans it was important to act honorably it was important to act honorably 
No, some could argue that there was a lot of implicit coercion and threats. Of course, and there that. was. In but, fact, I mean, yeah, in fact, I've admitted that as well. There was yeah. more than implicit coercion, and there was more than implicit manipulation and machination. But at the end of the day, for these guys, this was the job that had to be done, and that was how you basically had to get it done by whatever means were possible. You know, even when it comes to Hyderabad, VP's own words are, "You can say whatever you want, but I still think that it was necessary to do what we did in Hyderabad." So these were men for whom the end was very, very clear, but they did not lose sight of the fact that the rulers they were dealing with were also humans themselves. Absolutely, and your book, of course, details all this out very well, and then it goes on to sort of the post Patel career, right. VP, where he's first a governor somewhere, and in Orissa, yeah. in Orissa for a couple of months, and then he's part of the finance planning commission, right, right, right. and then he moves on, and later he joins the Swatantra Party. And so on and so forth, uh-huh. and, and then he dies in the mid sixties. I'll just recommend that people read your book because it's an important part of your history, and also sort of give me insight into how an individual can carry so much import. Yeah. Like reading your book, looking at all the things that VP Menon did, especially in that period of time where Patel was ill or incapacitated or couldn't handle it. It's very hard for me to imagine. Mm. What this nation would look like today, VP Menon wasn't there. Do you believe in the great man theory of history? You know, Carlyle's whole thing that great men shape history, or would you say that the currents of history are all sort of going in whatever direction they are, and men just happen to be where they are? No, I, I in fact believe in. I don't know whether it's the great man theory or not, but I do believe that once your basic foibles of your personality have the power to shape history. So basically, actions that are driven by your ego or your personality have. The power to change the course of events. Nations have gone to war for less, you know. So I, there is one particular sentence in my book where I basically talk about, you know, Patel has died, and VP is reflecting on the death of Patel, and he says that thank God, essentially, that integration happened while Sardar was alive, yeah. right? I think that is a huge testament to the fact that the integration of this country. Could not have been possible without Sardar Patel. I think VP VP certainly believed that Sardar Patel was a great man. In doing so, I also feel like that statement gives away a lot of his uh, own tendency to efface himself from that because I also believe that Sardar Patel could not have done this without VP Menon. I think Sardar Patel could have said the same about VP Menon. That's what I mean. I think the same could be said about VP Menon also. And honestly, give the task that they did, I cannot imagine someone like say Nehru yeah. for all his greatness. I mean, yeah. Nehru built so many institutions. We are secular because of him. Thank God, Nehru existed. Yes. However, Nehru could not have done this. He was a completely different kind of personality. There were, there were men with different abilities and different capacities. Exactly. And I and think one tends to lose sight of that in this day and age. Uh, and it's easy to lose sight of that perhaps in this day and age. But I don't think that that should be done. I mean, Patel and Nehru were very different men with very different capacities, right? Patel was somebody who could unify in different ways, right? Nehru could unify in different ways. Patel could unify in different ways. Patel was incredibly pragmatic. His vision for the future was uh, crystal clear, and he knew exactly how to go about it as well. Nehru was far more emotionally driven. He was somebody who was incredibly sensitive as well. He was erudite, articulate, all of that, and certainly. India needed somebody who was both eloquent, articulate, and erudite, given where she was going. But India also needed somebody who was capable of very firm decisions and very cool-headed decisions, which Nehru was not capable of. But Sardar was, in that sense of the word, I think he was a great deputy to have, because you need someone like that to balance you out. It does not necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. 
I think it's a very necessary thing to have somebody to anchor you and hold you down and ground you. Uh, Sardar Patel was a very grounded, pragmatic man. We tend to lose sight of that now, you know, because it's easy, as you said, to get lost in binaries. Uh, history was never a binary. For me, it's not a binary. It's a very complex web of, and it's a very crazy sort of patchwork of intersecting personalities. Yeah, very wise words, especially now today when history is often sought to be weaponized Absolutely. by politicians to Absolutely. serve their own purposes or narratives. Whereas, you know, you and I would both agree, and I think any sensible person would agree that, listen, Nehru and Patel were both great people. We're lucky to have them. And indeed, VP Menon, yeah. about whom I think uh, more people should know. Uh, and they should buy the book. But I will now turn the spotlight on you <laughs> that now the book is over. What do you feel? Is there a sense of relief? How has your family reacted to it? Because that is VP Menon's family as well. <laughs> and uh, what's up next? Well, um, I at the moment feel nothing but absolute exhaustion because this has been the last five years of my life has gone into writing and researching this book. So I feel sort of empty almost like I've actually put out this work out there. I'm now talking about it, which for me, it's always been easier to write rather than actually talk about it. But, you know, even when you put down VP Menon's words in the barest of the minimum words, it's still an inspirational story. It's still a story you want to listen to. I mean, this is a kid who dropped out of matriculate and burnt his freaking school at 13 <laughs> and ran away to work in a coal mine and went from there to sell towels on the streets yeah. of Bombay. Yeah. And, and, and then went on to become one of India's highest civil servants. Our finest civil servant. Finest I will, civil I will make servant. a categorical statement even if you won't. I, I agree. He was one of India's finest civil servants. Not one of he was. He was India's finest civil <laughs> <Thank> servant. <you>. <laughs> <laughs> My family has been uh, very supportive during the writing of this. I don't think any amount of information was ever hidden. Uh, and that especially contributed to writing about his personal life. I think it's very difficult for uh, not just me as a biographer, but for them as his grandchildren to go over aspects of his marital life, about his second marriage, about, you know, his foibles as a, a man, about his, his emotional coldness, his, his emotional his coldness, his emotional stuntedness. I think it's difficult to put that down objectively. And they have, they've absolutely been 100% forthcoming with all of his shortcomings. Uh, and I, I can't give them enough credit for that because you need a certain level of honesty and a willingness to actually put it out there. I think the problem with telling history a lot these days is your tendency to sanitize, your tendency to uh, eulogize. My family didn't intend on doing that from the get-go. They knew that VP's personal life was complicated. They knew that parts of his professional life uh, was complicated as well with his fallout with Nehru. They also knew that me putting this out in the public domain was going to be tricky given the political climate. I received no pushback from my family about any of this. They're very, very willing. And I'm speaking also for family members whom I contacted via Twitter. I met for the first time. There was no reluctance to volunteer information. And honestly, I can't give everyone enough credit for that because it's a rare, rare quality to actually be that open about uh, somebody's shortcomings, somebody's career plummeting. Uh, the reasons why that somebody's career plummeted. And this becomes even more complicated because uh, if you read the book, you'll also know that we are also, my nani's sister, brother married Nehendara Segal. 
so we are also connected to the nehru family themselves so it is difficult on both ends you know because you're also then talking directly so you are also an extended part of the nehru family can you take I, over the congress someday no i would not want to do any such thing <laughs> <laughs> so it's difficult because honestly i had to keep uh, both aspects in mind i have not uh, like i said held back and that was completely with the support of the wapala side of the family including my own mother and uncle because we all felt collectively that this was an incredibly important aspect of his career and it shouldn't be hidden including his personal life it was a subject that's been raised many times also i feel that the objective of a good biography is to try and marry the public and personal life well if you can do that and if you can present a good comprehensive or as comprehensive as you can make it portrait of a personality against the backdrop of the life and times in which he lived i think then you've succeeded as a biographer and i can only hope i've managed to do that with this book Well, you absolutely managed to do that, and I think what good history also, what a good book of history should also do is deepen one's understanding of both history and human nature. Yeah, and your book certainly does that. So thank you so much for sparing more than three hours uh, <laughs> uh, in the studio. This must be another reason you're exhausted, right? First five years of writing, and then ready to talk on a podcast for three hours. Well, I've talked on several forums before this, not for three hours, I'll admit, but uh, I have talked a lot about the subject. So getting used to talking. about vp i'm getting kind of excited about talking about vp too thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for having me if you enjoyed listening to this episode hop on over to your nearest bookstore online or offline and buy the magnificent biography of vp menon by narayani basu you can also follow her on twitter at narayani_basu you can follow me on twitter at amitwarma a m i t v a r m a you can browse past episodes of the seen and the unseen at seenunseen.in and thinkpragati.com The Seen and the Unseen is supported by the Takshashila Institution. Hop on over to takshashila.org.in for more info on their public policy courses. Who knows you could be the next BP Menon. Thank you for listening. Did you enjoy this episode of The Seen and the Unseen? If so, Would you like to support the production of the show? You can go over to seenunseen.in/support and contribute any amount you like to keep this podcast alive and kicking. Thank you.